This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa, who famously has just authored and released the new Mountain Lion review, which I'm sure we may talk about today. Of course, I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, July 27th, 2012. This is episode number 78. We want to say thanks very much to our three sponsors, lovely sponsors, Hover.com, SourceBits.com, and DocuSign.com. We also would like to say thanks very much to our bandwidth sponsor for July. It's Infinite Kind. These are the folks who make SyncSpace for iPad and Android, which enables multiple people to sketch ideas together wherever they are. Learn more at InfiniteKind.com. John Syracusa, Mountain Lion. Today is the day to talk about this. I'm just guessing what your topic might actually be. I thought we were going to talk about Journey today. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's do that instead. Maybe at the end we'll, we'll talk about the survey results, but no, we're not going to talk about Journey today. Something a little bit more important to you. Mountain Lion is out, and you were, you were prepared. You have written a review. The review is out. I'm assuming you've already added it to the show notes, but I can, I can encourage people who would like to read it if they haven't. Uh, it's very easy to find. Just Google for it or go to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 78. All the links are there. What, what a wonderful, uh, I don't know, it, it, it seems to call this an article wouldn't be a disservice to it. it it's, just, it's not a simple review either, but let's just, We'll just use the term review. What a great you're, review. You're not going to say it? You're not going to say big week? I was waiting for you to... No. No? No. It's the, it's the one big week I have during the whole year. Big, big week. week. Big week, John. Huge week for you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally unprepared for this podcast. <laughs> no research Surprise. done at all this time no, around. I'm, I'm serious in that I have no show notes. I have added no links. What do you need show notes for? You've got a 300-page like document that you wrote. Why, that's, what? Why, that's why I'm not prepared. <laughs> I assumed, like, I don't need to write anything down no. in my notes to remind myself about Mountain Lion. Uh, I, but I, I should have actually added the, uh, the links to the review and the stuff to the show notes. I'll, <laughs> I'll do that after. There's only a couple of links, I think, that we'll end up adding. Um, so there's two things, two two ways we could go about this. And I was thinking about this in the days leading up to this podcast. Uh, one is all of the stuff that I've been spending my time doing leading up to and in the immediate aftermath of the publication of this article. And I definitely do want to talk about that stuff, but I would think I'm going to save it for later because it's kind of, it's like you know, how the sausage is made kind of story. But that's not the story for this week. I think the story for this week is the actual product itself. So I'm going to try on this show to only talk about the product itself and my review of it and talk in a future show about the process of making it and publishing it and all of my various woes related to that yeah that I, I, I do think i think listeners of this show especially but in general i think that's fascinating i've got a little bit of a glimpse of it of course i read your your it was it your second post ever on your blog uh maybe third but it i was read like seven maybe five seven really? I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to double digits <laughs> anyway i read that and maybe we can why don't we put that into the show notes yeah, so people can can see this that as a second link 
and they can get ahead of the game for the next time when you're ready to talk about it. Because your process, to to many of us, I think would be as interesting as the article itself. Yeah, and actually, the the one thing I'll say about that link is, uh, it's a if you just want to know if for some reason you're listening to this and you have you you feel like you want to read my review of Mountain Lion but have not yet done so. I would suggest going to the link that's going to be titled like about my mountain lion review or something, because the very first paragraph of the, you know, the very top of that uh, post says, uh, I wrote this review. Here are the umpteen ways that you can read it. And then the rest of the thing explains all those different ways that you can read it. So if you're just wondering, I think I would like to read this thing and I haven't done so already. How can I read it? That gives you all the options in a condensed form. So I would suggest going there first, uh, if you have not read it. But I assume anyone who's listening to this has either read it or already decided not to read it because they'd rather just listen to a podcast about it. And I understand that. Do you find that or feel that at this point for your, your plans, although I know you have no notes, your plans for today's episode, do you feel that those who uh, who have not yet read it, do they still need to read it after today's show, do you think? Need to? I mean, like it's it's... Or, or should to, they stop? Should they stop now and go read it and come back? I don't know. People do whatever they want. Like I, I will probably cover a lot of the same ground, but it's just it's. Uh, I, I'll tell you what. Then, since you're not going to commit, I, I will. I will suggest to people that they go and read it anyway. I'm not saying they have to stop. In fact, I say continue to listen because I feel like this uh, will build upon just based on last year's. So yeah, let's get to it. Let's talk about it. Let's just dive right in. How are you going to do this? You're just going to go chronologically. I'm, I guess so. We're just gonna, I'm just going to go through the article from beginning to end, and we'll see how far we get. And we could stop off on the parts that you think are, are, are of particular interest, or that you have extra questions about, or you know. And we'll we'll just do that, and we'll see how far we get. Right? Fantastic. Uh, and if if it looks like we're not getting through to the end, maybe I'll just accelerate, and because uh, I want to try to cover most things here. Uh, so, in the intro, this is usually the hardest part of this kind of uh, article to write. I have to try to frame the situation. And how do I frame Mountain Lion? Where does this fall in the context of Mac operating system releases and stuff like that? And and in the intro, what I, how I framed it was in terms of the previous operating system, Lion. Uh, in fact, a large amount of this review is spent uh, discussing things that happened in Lion, not in Mountain Lion. Like almost every section is like, before I can even talk about what Mountain Lion is doing here, you have to understand what Lion did because what Mountain Lion is doing is a reaction to what Lion did in some way or another. And that, I, I surprised myself with it. I, I was like unable to write about anything about Mountain Lion without first, you know, almost repeating whole sections of Lion review, paraphrased them with a historical context. Uh, but I think that was necessary because you know, like Mountain Lion is, you know, it's something Lion. It's a modified version of Lion in, in name, right? And that name uh, is an accurate reflection, uh, I think, of the way the operating system was made. It really is take Lion as a starting point and tweak stuff. Whereas Lion was not like that. Lion was not Snow Leopard with a couple things tweaked here and there. Lion really diverged greatly from uh, from Snow Leopard. So that's, that's the framing device here. Uh, and in particular, the framing device is... Uh, emphasized by the section titled Sins of the Father, where there are many things in Lion that people didn't like. And it's Mountain Lion's job to make good where Lion angered people or upset people or whatever. Um, and so this is, this is Apple's chance to uh, 
fix what they may have screwed up with Lion. So the first bit, as usual, is about the purchase and installation process. Uh, this I know I didn't want to talk too much about meta stuff, but this is the one section in the review that I believe may have the most important factual error in the entire review, which so far, how many days in are we? No, only one person has mentioned, uh, and yet I have this feeling, which I will elaborate on in a future show, that like, you know, you write 25,000 words, but if there's one incorrect factual statement in there, the whole review is crap. Like it's, it's just ruined. It's, you might as well just throw it in the garbage and burn it. It's pointless. Don't For even sure. read the thing, right? Yeah, get rid of it. It's my obsession with having every single thing right here. And this one is a result of, it's either a result of my carelessness, which is a possibility, uh, or it's a result of the fact that this review is written, was written based on developer builds. Mm. And even though we had the GM uh, when I don't know if people know this, but when you're a developer and you get developer rails of the operating system, they give you like a little code and you get it through the Mac App Store application. But it's not the same purchase process as it is. It's like a it's like a redemption code. It's not the same purchase process as you would get from the store where you actually go in with your account and buy it there. You get you get a code and you redeem it and it gives you the thing. Now, I don't know if behind the scenes those things are, are the same or different, but it's it definitely feels different to go to. Apple's developer website and click on a button and have it open the Mac App Store app and automatically enter a code and get you the thing versus going to the Mac App Store, hitting the install button or the purchase button or whatever. It could be that those things behind the scenes are the same, and I'm not sure. Um, but the detail that I think I may have wrong, and I haven't even had time to test whether I have this wrong, is the part about activation. And I think we talked about this on a past show. We were talking about, like, does the, you know, Lion or Mountain Lion or whatever installer have any awareness of who purchased it, right? Because we all know buried inside there, there's a bunch of .pkg, .mpkg files that you can just take and uh, and burn to something and and have a, you know an operating system installer. But we were debating whether the little like install uh, OS 10 Mountain Lion little icon that appears in your application folder, if that is tied to your identity, or if you could just take copy that installer to someone else's computer and run it, and you'd be fine. And I think you can actually copy that installer to someone else's computer and run it. But during the installation process, uh, when it asks you for an Apple ID, someone sent me a screenshot uh, there where it mentions something about phoning home and making sure that this Apple ID is authorized or this computer is authorized right. to install Mountain Lion on it. And I never saw that in any of my testing. And I installed all the developer builds multiple times onto multiple hard drives. Now, why didn't I see it? Is it because the developer installation process is different? Is it because I had a previous version of an authorized operating system on the computer and so it didn't need to check with the servers and this only shows up when you install onto an empty drive with no other hard drive connected that has an authorized version? Because I never did that. All the machines I installed on, I would install on an empty drive, but other drives on the computer had authorized versions of Lion and sometimes uh, earlier builds of Mountain Lion on it as well. So maybe that's why I never saw it. Uh, Maybe it's just that I always put in the same Apple ID as I used for my developer account. Although that's not, I don't think that's true. So that, that's what confused me because like my, I have two Apple IDs. One is not an email address. It's the one I've had from way back when. Mm -hmm. And that is the one that I'm uh, signed up for the Mac developer program with. And my second Apple ID is a Mac.com email address. And that's the one I use to buy my iTunes music and stuff like that. So they're two different things. So when I sign into the Apple developer portal, with my non-email Apple ID and get a redemption code, I think I end up re I end up redeeming it on my the Apple ID for the email address. I don't know. I'm I'm very confused about it. But anyway, what I said in, in this part of the review is that there's no product activation, no DRM, and you can install it in any computer you own and control. 
Uh, you can install it on any computer you own or control, but I think it may be checking back home that you've actually purchased this thing ever before. Uh, have you installed it yet? Have you encountered any of this? I, I, I have installed it on two different machines, and the first machine that I installed it on uh, was an older, not that old, but an older Mac MacBook Pro. It's a 13-inch aluminum MacBook Pro. Uh, that, that was the very first generation of those. And then I, I did an upgrade that was a clean install. You know, I, I, I booted up, um, off of the, well, my install process maybe is throwing this off a little bit too, but I'll, I'll take the image and I'll install it to an external USB drive. I'll boot from that drive and then I'll install from that. Uh, when I do a, a fresh clean install, cause I'll use disk utility to blow everything away and, and all of that. In that case, no, I, I, I saw the same thing that you did. No indication that anything was happening and it was doing it on a, a completely, you know, wipe clean drive with nothing on it. And then the second process was upgrading a MacBook Air that I had, in which case there was Lion already running on that. Uh, and I saw no indication of, of that at all. Yeah, so I have, I have to further investigate that. I haven't actually changed my article because I don't know what I would change it to say. But that that is the one thing that's sticking in my craw about this section. Uh, and again, I can't help going meta. Like, I think we'll talk more about the process of fixing, you know, typos and other smaller mistakes for something like a web article that happens to have ebook versions in that business. But that's that's for later. Uh, so, the rest of this section is pretty straightforward. Uh, the, the differences from Lion that I think are significant is that Lion uh, was available on a USB stick for for seventy bucks uh, a month after Lion was released. Apple said, "Oh, and if you really, really, really don't want to." install it over the network and buy it from the Mac store for $70, which is substantially more than the $30 that the product costs in the Mac app store. You could get one of those weird bare Apple USB sticks with the exposed contacts uh, with Lion on it. There is no equivalent product for Mountain Lion. Apple is, is not making a USB stick with Mountain Lion on it. So it really is digital only. Uh, and what we've learned since Lion is that going digital wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, like I said in the review, I think everybody who wanted Lion could get it, right? Like, if you didn't care, didn't know about this stuff, your, your next Mac would come with it and whatever, you're fine, right? Uh, if you did know about it and you were a tech nerd, those guys, I guess, just all got it from the Mac App Store or had enough bandwidth or went to an Apple Store. Like, that was basically a non-story. When Lion came out, we didn't know how it was going to be. Was it going to be a disaster? Oh, my God, I don't have physical media for this operating system and how can I, you know, repair when I have a problem or how can I download it or I'm on a 2400 baud modem? How can I get this? You know, it, it just worked itself out. I, that really was a non-issue for in the year since Lion came out. I have not heard. Uh, and, and I imagine I would hear about it because people will email me and say, you wrote a review of Lion, but I don't like Lion because it's digital only. And let me tell you why. And like, not that I can do anything about it, but people tend to vent their anger at uh, Apple's products to me. And I didn't hear anything really about it being digital only. Uh, so uh, the same thing with Apple. Like, I actually, for the first time, for the first time for any of my Mac OS X interviews, I actually got to talk to Apple this time. Uh, of course, when did I get to talk to Apple? Days before the release of the <laughs> operating system. After, after long after it's too late to really change anything. So, yeah. I asked as many questions as I could. I forgot to ask them a whole bunch of questions that I should have asked them, but it's just that was really cutting close. But anyway, one of the questions I really wanted to ask them was, "Are you going to do this USB stick thing?" And they said, "No, we're not." Uh, and I asked them why they're not going to do it. And they said, uh, nobody bought that thing. Like they wouldn't give me numbers and they wouldn't, you know, I couldn't get any actual information. All very vague, but basically like it was not a popular product. Most people installed digitally. There were not problems. Uh, so 
that is, uh, I think that's a success story for going digital. I mean, not that we should be surprised because, you know, iOS has only be, always been digital only and the Mac App Store is, of course, digital only. And even the people who aren't on the Mac App Store aren't shipping you discs most of the time. Uh, although when, I remember when I bought Photoshop recently, I'm like, you know what? I would like for this amount of money, I would like a cardboard box of some kind. <laughs> you feel like you really bought something then. Yeah, I got the digital download anyway because I'm impatient. Like that's it's the future uh, that worked out well. So, oh, and the price it was thirty bucks last year. It's twenty dollars this year. Again, I asked Apple why is it less money. They just gave the same answer that you know it's a talking point at this point. They talked about it at a WWDC keynote. Like, we want more people to have this. We want you know a lower price means more people will get it. We want, we want to push adoption. Uh, Apple emphasizes the things that they've been hammering on. Like, look how many people upgrade to our new operating system. Without sometimes explicitly mentioning Android and its problems with adoption rate, but we all know what we're talking about. It's like, hey, we release a new operating system and overnight, a huge percentage of our installed base is upgraded and we think this is great. So we want to lower the barriers to entry. I asked them, well, why isn't it free? But, you know, they're not going <laughs> to. They have a certain set of talking points they're going to stick to. Yeah, but that is that's the question is basically like, all right, $29, uh, uh, $19.99. They added the 99 cents now. So they're really doing the whole pricing psychology thing it was the 29 dollars ones was just 29 it wasn't 29.99 it was just 29 but this is 19.99 so is the next one five bucks is it free as many people pointed out eventually uh, the ebook versions of my review may cost more than the operating system which would already be true if i was <laughs> writing about ios of course because right. ios updates are free uh, so we'll see where that's going i mean uh, obviously they didn't want to go right down to free but it seems like they're slowly creeping up on it um but we're going to have to go faster. Maybe, maybe we'll have to split this up over multiple shows. We can do it. We'll split it up, make it, make a 30, 40 episode run of these things. Yeah. Uh, the, and we the, got, and the, we got sponsors to do. So don't forget that. All right. Well, you just, I'm just going to keep going. You just interrupt me and tell me when we get to a sponsor. Okay. We'll get a few more minutes. Okay. Uh, so machine support is another thing to look at for the, all of Apple's recent operating systems. They always want to drop old machines. They, they just don't want to support them if they don't have to. So, uh, and this is one of the, one of the minor things that I got slightly wrong. Uh, it was just a brain fart, and I corrected it. Most of these corrections were made within several hours of publication. So if you weren't an early uh, reader, by the time you read the thing, all these corrections are done. But I had originally written that, that uh, Apple dropped Intel support with Lion. Actually, they dropped it with Snow Leopard, and they dropped 32-bit support with Lion. So I got those confused. Uh, th- and like I would write an incorrect statement while linking back to the reviews where I described the thing, you know. So <laughs> you think you think if anybody would know which release did what, it would be me, the person linking back to the reviews in which I explain it to myself. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so they dropped support for PowerPCs and Snow Leopard, and they dropped 32-bit uh, in, 32-bit support in uh, Lion, and so. Mountain Lion, like, what else do they have to drop? You know, like, <laughs> there's the joke around the uh, the internet water cooler is that 10.9 will, will not run on plastic Macs. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. some, will not run on any, like, what other requirements? Can, you're already requiring Intel. You're already requiring 64-bit Intel. What else are you going to require? Nothing that has USB 2 anywhere on it. You know, I don't know what their uh, requirements are. But so Mountain Lion uh, makes the 64-bit kernel uh, the default and mandatory thing and you need a computer can that can run the 64-bit kernel and you would think that any mac with a 64-bit processor can run the 64-bit kernel because that would make sense right uh but many process many macs that have 64-bit processors are not supported by mountain line uh, 
And it's just it's mostly a matter of not wanting to support older, older hardware. I asked Apple about this and they gave they didn't say there was any one particular reason. They just gave a whole bunch of reasons. There's been a lot of articles written about this, including one uh, written by Ars Technica that I linked from the review. Uh, people have theories. It's like, oh, they didn't want to uh, rewrite the drivers for the GPUs in some old models because a lot of the old models have GPUs that like you know aren't popular anymore, and their drivers were 32-bit, which was fine because the kernels on those machines were 32-bit. But if you were to upgrade that machine to a 64-bit kernel, you need a 64-bit equivalent of that driver because 32-bit drivers do not run in the 64-bit kernel. And it takes time and energy and effort to make a 64-bit version of a driver. A lot of people are like, can't you just recompile the drivers? Don't they just recompile? Like, If, if there's going to be any code that's going to be wonky to convert from 32 <laughs> to 64-bit, it's going to be drivers because yeah, they sure. do all sorts of weird low-level stuff. Uh, the second thing is the GPU hardware itself. Say you wrote 64-bit drivers for those GPUs. Maybe those GPUs are wimpy and maybe there's things that Mountain Lion wants to do where it wants to say, look, a Mountain Lion wants to know that it has at least this this kind of, of a GPU. And I, I think I didn't I don't have any information on this and Apple wouldn't tell me. But my one of my theories is that so Mountain Lion has, has made some changes to make it so that the on, on portable Macs with a discrete and an integrated GPU, uh, Apple's trying to make it so the integrated GPU is used more often because they have this dynamic GPU switching where it's like if you're in a window that just has a bunch of text in it or something, it uses the integrated GPU and saves your battery. But if, once your window starts doing some kind of fancy drawing, it uses it switches over to the discrete GPU. And you can get this uh, utility called what is it, graphics card status or something. It gives you like a little menu item that lets you know uh, what which GPU is in use right now. And really for battery life, you don't want that discrete GPU to be used. Obviously, if you're gaming or something, a discrete GPU is going to be used. But for just scrolling around web pages, you want the other one. Well, uh, Apple is trying to make it so that fewer applications run afoul of the rules that make it switch to the discrete GPU. And part of doing that is probably, well, if we had if the integrated GPU met some minimum standard of powerfulness, we wouldn't have to switch over to the discrete GPU. So by excluding Macs with with older, crappier integrated GPUs, they can write the operating system with a different policy about when they switch. Uh, and then there's just, you know, I mean, there's, there's the issue of 64-bit EFI and stuff like that, but it's like every every Mac that you qualify to run this new kernel uh, needs to be QA tested, and you need to, you know, like there's there's an additional burden for supporting older Macs, and if you can drop them, you will. And like what it comes down to, kind of like the uh, the issue with the USB stick, uh, and again, Apple would not give numbers on this, uh, is most people have newer Macs. Like if you look at the, the Mac install base has grown, what is it like? Three, it's grown three times in yeah. the past like five years or something. I don't know. I might have the stats wrong, but the Mac user base is growing tremendously, which means most Mac users are new Mac users and have new Macs. So even though you're out there with your 2006 iMac that has a 64 bit processor and you're like, Hey, why can't I run mountain line? So many more Mac users are, have come ahead of you. If, you. if you graph it out, you are in like the little sliver of the ramp. And then, you know, so there's just not that many of those Macs out there. And those Macs that are out there, people with 2006 iMacs are not the kind of person who are going to try to, you know, who are going to buy Mountain Line. They're probably still running whatever OS came with the thing in 2006. So really, uh, this this makes people grumpy, but there's just so much, so many numbers in favor uh, and just, you know, basic reason and common sense in favor of dropping support for those old machines and just going forward. Like those old machines still work fine. You could run Snow Leopard on them. You, in many cases, you could run Line on them. You just can't run Mountain Line on it. It's not the end of the world, you know. Uh, so most people aren't really upset about that. I didn't do much time. I just spent much more time now trying to explain and defend the decision. I didn't 
try to explain or defend it almost at all in the article because I didn't want to get bogged down in that. I just said, look, here's what it supports. Uh, and there you have it. You know, no, <laughs> I spent a long time talking about it with Apple, but decided not to attempt to articulate their reasoning, which is fuzzy, or give my own reasoning. I'm going to just say this is what supports uh, and deal with it. Like, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, so I, I'm not particularly upset about it, even though my Mac Pro just barely made the cut for Mountain Lion. And, and you say, well, what if your Mac Pro didn't make the cut? Wouldn't you be cranky? Yeah, I probably would be cranky. I would be especially cranky because the new Mac Pros they release are so crappy, but I'm already cranky about that. But, you know, I would, I would <laughs> accept it. I would probably find myself, if my Mac Pro got cut out, I would probably find myself in like six months or so buying one of Marco's uh, crappy Mac Pros. Like the new, the, the quote-unquote new ones that aren't really new and have two-year-old processors in them. I, that's what I would end up doing, which is sad, but true. Uh, All right, let's do our first sponsor. You take a, you take a breather. Okay. First sponsor is DocuSign.com. Special URL just for you guys. DocuSign.com slash 5 by 5 You go there, you'll get a free uh, 30-day trial. But let me just give you the highlights. Let me give you the overview of this, Sean. Uh, it, well, first of all, DocuSign is the most widely used e-signature platform in the universe. What does it do? It lets you sign documents anywhere from any device. iPhone, iPad, of course. You can also do it from your computer. You don't have to fax things. You don't have to do overnight waiting. You don't have to do any of this uh, tedious stuff. And I'll tell you in a second how it saved my life. Uh, But what I want you to know about DocuSign, the main thing that I want you to, to know is Anytime that you want to get a document signed or you need to be part of a signature process, think about using DocuSign. Uh, the, the coolest thing here, the most important thing here, you could say, well, you know what? I can, I can use preview to sign PDFs. Yes, you can. Uh, but is that, illegally, is that really legally binding? Did you really sign it? Do you know what the people that you're sending it to are going to do with it? Is, is this an enterprise-level certified audited system? I'm going to say signing a document with PDF, probably not. Uh, so what this has DocuSign, a complete audit trail that they maintain, they encrypt all of the documents. It's more secure than paper, more secure than email, and they're stored all the way up there in the cloud, the cloud that we all love. You can access those documents and see what it was that you signed. You can see who signed something and who hasn't signed it. You can download it and print it if you want. But if you have a group of people and here's how it saved my life. My wife was, at this point, nine months pregnant. We were here in Austin. We were, we were in the process of making offers on our house, going back and forth. Well, they don't want to do this change. Oh, we don't want to do it. Back and forth. Every time you need to initial and sign every single one of these documents. Well, my real estate agent, fortunately, was a, he was a geek too. And he said, oh, we're going to do this all with DocuSign. So then we could see the instant that those people like accepted our offer or made a change or rejected something. We could get in there. We could see what it was. We could see the history. We could make the change. You can do this all on your iPad now. It's amazing stuff. And I'm talking about it in the context of like when we bought our house, but the businesses love this thing because it works and it is certified and it is encrypted and it meets all the standards and audits and everything to make it legal. So go check these guys out. Uh, DocuSign.com slash 5x5. Support the show, John. Let them support the show. DocuSign.com slash 5x5. Check them out. Been hearing all these DocuSign ads. is making me want to sign documents. Yeah, I, I'll send you something to sign today. All right. And you could send out autographed copies of your, uh, your yeah. review, and it, we could have proof that it was you that signed it. There you go. See? Always thinking. <laughs> 
All right, let's continue. All right. Um, yeah, the only other thing to mention on the, uh, the installation thing is the network recovery stuff, which is another reason I think Lion didn't have a problem with going uh, all digital and mount Lion will continue not to because all the modern Macs have, you know, if you boot them with holding down, was it Command R or something? Even if you have no media or anything, if you can find access to an open wireless network of some kind, it can connect to Apple servers and, and re-download the operating system, booting off a little recovery partition and pull the rest of the software. Like it's all, you know, it's all in the digital age, and it's it's really neat. And like since I've since I've been slinging around Lion and Mountain Lion on various test systems for a year now, it really is so much nicer than the old way where I had to. Uh, you didn't get CD. Well, you used to get CDs back in the day, but in more recent years, what you would get is like a, a disc image. And you'd have to burn that disk image to an optical disk, or you could do what I would do, which is splat that disk image onto a separate partition. But then you'd have to boot from that partition to install onto yet another partition. <laughs> so it's just always carving up your disks into little pieces and moving things around. This is so much easier with just an installer application. And uh, as I said in the review, the neatest thing I think that I didn't think about beforehand is that, like, so you get that install, you know, OS 10 Lion thing that's been sitting in your applications folder for a year. Uh, if you've been updating your Mac App Store apps, that installer has slowly been updated to install 10.7.1, 10.7.2, 10.7.3, 10.7.4. So when you want to sling that installer over to some new computer that comes along that you just bought or, you know, that, or an old one that has Snow Leopard or something, it's not going to install 10.7.0. It'll install 10.7 whatever is the current version because it's slowly been updated. And the same thing will happen with the 10.8 installer. So I really like this and it seems uh, very neat to me. I give it a big thumbs up. So the next section is about interface changes. And I actually, when I wrote this review, what I wrote about first was I wrote the intro and the installation thing, and then I wrote about the applications, because there's a lot of applications that are, there's some new applications and there's changed applications. Uh, and I didn't, I was like, geez, am I going to have an interface section at all? But like in the second to last or third to last build, they updated the dock and did some other tweaks. They tend to do that, like they hold the cosmetic yeah, to the very you, last minute. That almost makes sense in a way because those are things that you should be able to change system-wide knowing the little bit that I know about the you know infrastructure of, of the OS and the way that it works. It seems like those are the kinds of things you could change at the last minute. And why would you want to? Well, because the less that's leaked about whatever new look comes out, the better, right? Yeah, and I think it was WWDC when they first showed off the new dock. Yeah. Uh, and that was, so that was, I don't know if it's the third to last build, was that DP2? I don't remember the number anymore. But yeah, for the longest time, that there wasn't change. And then once that came out, I'm like, all right, well, now I have now I have at least something to write about. Obviously, I had Notification Center and stuff that I hadn't really written about. But even Notification I was, notification Center, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit, I was avoiding writing about because it's like one of those features that I just know if I start playing with it and writing about it, uh, they're going to change it. And I'm, everything I wrote will, will have been pointless. Uh, and the worst part is, okay, so even if they don't change the behavior, I know they're going to change the appearance of this thing. So I should avoid taking screenshots of it because this is a new feature and it has new graphics. There's no, there was no equivalent before and they could change their mind on this. Luckily, they didn't change their mind too much. There are a couple screenshots in the review that people have written and told me, you know, in the release build, that word is different. I'm like, damn them. But you know, what can you do? <laughs> uh, right. And, and that's another case where I just missed it. Like, it's really hard to look over every single pixel in your uh, thing and see if they've changed anything. So they, I think they changed the wording on the Twitter button at the top of Notification Center to say, like, tweet or instead of Twitter or something like that. Uh, but anyway, so the, the interface things, uh, we start off with the dock. I don't use the 3D dock. On, like, I'm staring at a line computer now. I use the glass look, as they call it, where it's just like a gray uh, a black rectangle translucent thing. Is that do, what you do, use? Yeah, oh, definitely. But I use it. Because that's that's the way that it is when you put it on the side anyway. But you're saying you keep it on the bottom and you tweak it so that it displays the the sort of 
transparent looking. Yeah. yeah. I remember when they, they first came out with this, this, uh, what was it in leopard or something? Uh, yeah, it was in leopard, but they first came out with the, what we call the 3d dock. It looks like it's receding into the distance. And when you put it on the side, it looked crazy because it was this weird slanted thing with icons sticking to it. Like when it's on the bottom, at least it looks like gravity is holding them down onto a, a surface of some kind. But when it's on the side, it looks ridiculous. So that's why they came up with the glass uh, dock. I remember when Leopard was in dev builds, it used to be that when you put it on the side, it would still show that appearance. And people were like, that's just hideous. And I don't like the 3D dock at all anyway. Uh, but of all the various 3D docks that have come out since 10.5, this by far is my favorite one. It is the least offensive one. I like the look of it. There's been some debate of whether it's supposed to be metal or frosted glass. I, I weigh heavily on metal. At first, I thought it might have been frosted glass, and I think I wrote part of it, but then said, you know what? This isn't glass. This is just shiny metal. Because when you move like a window or an icon in front of it, you see reflections on top. You're not seeing through the thing. Uh, so I'm going with metal. I think it looks like a piece of uh, you know slightly polished aluminum. I don't think it looks very handsome. I may consider... On my mountain, you know, when I upgrade my main system mountain line, actually trying that dock for a while, which is uh, quite an achievement for me to use it because it really, like, it doesn't it doesn't eliminate the problem of the the perspective conflict between the perspective of the icons and the, and the perspective of the dock. Like, there's many things that don't look right about that, but the reflections are really nice looking, and I like the the metal look of it. So, do you um, think this will lead you to eventually switch back to using this style of dock? Maybe. I'm going to give it a try. I'm gonna, when I install it, I'm going to leave it that way and see if it drives me nuts. And we'll see how long it lasts. Uh, but speaking of driving me nuts, one thing that I already don't like is the little indicator lights underneath items in the dock. When the WWC build was shown in the keynote, I was like, is that like a drawing error or a glitch of some kind? Or is that the final art? Because it looked like uh, there was like a little white region on the on the front edge of the dock and i'm like maybe there's supposed to be a graphic there but instead it's just drawing white like a placeholder sort of, or something yeah or like it was a drawing error like it, it should be showing the image but instead it's just blanking out the pixels and showing white uh but on closer examination I said no that's an actual drawn thing and so it what it looks like is the front edge of the uh, aluminum dock thing it looks like it has a white LED embedded in it, a rectangular white LED embedded just in the front edge. And it is very subtle, much more subtle than the white dots in the, in the, uh, the, the black, you know, the glass, or the, note, the non-glass dock. And more subtle than the weird blue balls that also look very strange. They were like floating under the, you know, the indicator lights. These, from a distance, are much harder to see than the other indicator lights. But you're saying in your, in your piece, this is, this is intentional. Well, I remember back in Lion, for the longest time in the Lion builds, they were off by default. And it was, it was all part of Apple's way of saying, you don't need to know what apps are running. Just don't worry your little head about it. It's like an iOS where they show you all the apps that you've used recently, but you don't know which ones of them are running because iOS handles the resource allocations for you. And they wanted the Mac to be like that, where you don't have to worry about quitting applications to get your memory back and which ones are currently running. It should just all be the same thing. Uh, so the indicator lights were off by default, but... They wimped out at the last minute, and in the final build of Lion, they turned them on by default. Because, you know, as we've said many, many times, most users won't change the default. And I think if they had shipped it without the indicator lights, even though I, I just got a tweet today from someone who said they never even noticed indicator lights exist, and they've been using the Mac for three years. So even though it's probably not as important as we think it is, the people who do use the indicator lights to let them know what's running and what's not would be a little bit freaked out of them not being there. Uh, and yeah, you just go flip a checkbox and turns them on. It's not a big deal. But the defaults really do matter because most people have no idea where that checkbox is. 
or don't even have the notion that such a checkbox could exist. Like that's not how they relate to computers. They use them as they exist. And they're not like we are. As soon as you get a program, the first thing you do is hit command comma and look at the preferences window and tweak everything. Most people don't do that. Uh, so in Mountain Lion, they kind of split the difference and said, all right, you know, we wimped out at the last time. We didn't want to have them off the time. We'll still have them on by default, but we'll just like de-emphasize them visually. So they're on by default. And I think you can you still turn them off. I don't have a Mountain Lion machine handy. Uh, but they're so subtle, they it's almost like they're off. Like they're getting close. Like maybe next time they'll be just tiny little pinpricks of light. <laughs> and then eventually they'll just go away. It's like, oh, the indicator lights. Yeah, they're on by default. Don't you see them? That one pixel, that one retina pixel that's pure white, that's the indicator. Uh, so a little sneaky there. Uh, the, the other thing they're doing in uh, both the dock and the finder is they're putting progress bars either on top of... You can turn them off. Show, show indicator lights for open applications is the... A single uh, checkbox on the bottom, the, le- the last uh, final checkbox on the bottom, rather. There you go. Uh, so they've got the, these progress bars in the Finder and the Dock that show you copy progress. Uh, if you're copying something into a docked folder or you're copying something into a folder in the Finder, they I believe they still have these separate progress bar dialog things. Uh, but they have uh, actually. I should check that. It's another thing I can't remember off the top of my head. I've got I've got one a system here just for just for this show. So you tell me what you want me to look up. Yeah, right? just like do a, do a big multi do one copy operation that's going to take a while and then do a second one. I think you'll still get the little window that has the progress bars in it. All right, but you, I think you'll also get the little overlay uh, progress bars, and not on the dock, but when you do it in the Finder, the overlay progress bars have little closed boxes on them so you could cancel them. Um, so there's just more more ways they can give in, more interesting visual feedback. And this this uh, type of thing, overlaying progress bars on folder icons in the Finder, this is one of those things that we, that it's a benefit of the recent conversion of the Finder to Cocoa because it's, you know, have, having the Finder use the modern best supported uh, app development framework and also, by the way, the one with the loosest bindings, because you know Objective C has the ways to you know, uh, it's much much more loosely bound than than uh, just using a, a straight C or C plus plus program. You can call methods based on their name and do loose things like with key value binding and stuff. And uh, so, uh, and and it's just more modern and it's it's newer code uh, when they rewrote the Finder in, in Cocoa. So I imagine it is easier to add features like this to the Cocoa Finder than it would be would have been if the Finder was still Carbon. And never mind that, you know, Carbon, they didn't bring to 64-bit anyway, so that's several versions ago. But uh, they didn't do much to the Finder or the dock code-wise, but the things they did do, I would imagine that the Finder in particular were easier to do because of the Cocoa transition. Uh, the next bit I have here is about scroll bars, which again, don't seem like a dramatic or interesting feature, but Lion touched scroll bars for the first time in forever. Like scroll bars have been one of those things that just had not changed. Even in their appearance, they kept the same appearance for the longest time. Uh, and Lion changed all sorts of things about yeah, scroll Yeah, they changed bars. a handful of them. And you, you got them all. I was wondering as I was messing with it, I'm like, I know John's going to have something to say about the scroll bars. Because <laughs> you, yeah. you and these scroll bars. Yeah, and, and like it's a part of the operating system that you interact with all the time. Like It doesn't seem like a, that big of a deal, but... It, changing something like that has profound effects it's like everything has scroll bars like that's it's a big deal it's not like you get some amazing new feature but if, if they if they screw it up or do it in some way that annoys you it makes a big difference so in lion like there's a whole section in the line review said reconsidering fundamentals which is like stuff you never even thought about like the, the, the one thing they didn't touch was like you know the menu bar on the top of the screen but it was almost that level of type of thing like things that just you take for granted how about not having scroll bars what do you think of that huh 
What do you mean no scroll bars? How can I tell? That doesn't make, oh, they'll appear when you when you scroll. What, what, what do you mean? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, what if I just have a mouse that can't tell if I'm touching? Oh, well, yeah. So they, they did a reasonable compromise, and they, they changed the scroll bars dramatically. But, uh, you know, after a year of using Lion, people have complaints about scroll bars. I had complaints about the scroll bars in the Lion review. So Mountain Lion attempts to address some of those complaints. The weirdest one to me, and I think it's actually one of the first ones I talked about, is that they let the the overlay scrollers is what they call the ones that don't appear all the time. They only appear when you're scrolling or when you, uh, you know, uh, initiate a scroll operation. Now those little things overlap in the corner, whereas before they they wouldn't touch each other. That's a weird one to me. Like, is, yeah. that, is that a side effect of an implementation, or did someone go, you know what? I don't like that little empty white space where they don't touch. You know, like you can go two ways in this. If you're if you're kind of obsessive compulsive and you don't want them to touch, or you're obsessive compulsive and can't stand that little area where they can't go. So I, I don't know who they're satisfying here, but that was that was a change that happened. I'm pretty sure it was intentional, and it, there you have it. Although I don't think most people will see it. But uh, the next thing they did was they changed the the behavior of when you got the overlay scrollers, right? But you can grab them too. And it's one thing that's frustrated me about Lions overlay scrollers is if you bring your mouse over there, your cursor over, like you start scrolling, the overlay scrollers appear. You can grab them once they appear. It's like, oh, there's the scroll bar. Grab it before it disappears, right? But it's a little skinny thing, and it's kind of hard to grab. And frequently, I will start scrolling, and I'll realize, oh, I want to go much farther than I'm doing now. I'll start scrolling with my scroll wheel, and I'll go, you know what? I want to go all the way to the top. Let me grab that scroll thumb and yank it to the top. So I got to grab it. It's like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Hunter Seeker, Dune, must grip it tightly, right? <laughs> you got to get, right. get the, the, repulsors, <laughs> the repulsor fields make it slippery. Uh, right. <laughs> And frequently I miss, and that pisses me off. It's like I went to grab it, and oh, I, I missed it by a pixel, and now it's disappeared. Now i got to start scrolling in to make it reappear. Really annoying. Uh, so in Lion, they get much bigger when you put your mouse over that, that area. They expand out to basically the full width of a normal scroll bar, like 16, 16 points, not pixels, please. Uh, so they're much easier to grab. Uh, they also change what happens to the background when they appear over it. I have a screenshot showing the line behavior where when the scroll thumb was over an area, it would like blur it behind it and it just looked all smeary and gross. And now instead it just does like a white overlay. So uh, that that's an improvement. And that just shows like that, that level of detail where they're like, we know people have trouble grabbing these little things, but also while we're in there, it looks kind of ugly with that smeary crap. Why don't we change the appearance too? Like they didn't have to do that. That's not, wasn't so much a usability thing. That's just aesthetics. But I like the fact that they addressed all these things. Did I did I swap lion and mountain lion? People in the chat room are telling me I did. I apologize if I say the wrong operating system name uh, <laughs> frequently here. Uh, notification center is in the interface section too because here is something that's a pretty big addition to the interface. I started by talking about that upper right corner of the screen, which is that's like you know that is an important place in the operating system. All the corners are important places, but. The upper right corner in particular, like the upper left corner is so important. It's got the Apple menu in it. And when Apple tried not to put the Apple menu there, people flipped out and they said, no, 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 it has to be the Apple menu. So that was like way back before 10.0 was released. They used to have an Apple logo in the center of the menu bar, which made no sense. It was just gross. And eventually they relented and put the Apple menu back in the upper left. But then they, you know, they <laughs> won. How long did they, the Apple in the center stay? I remember that. It was like one or one build, two builds. Uh, but like they were getting complaints because I love the I, I complained too. I love the Apple menu. How can you get rid of the Apple menu? The Apple menu is awesome. And so like, all right, we'll put the Apple menu back. But they won in the end because they put back a menu with an Apple icon at the top of it. 
But the contents of it had almost nothing to do with the old Apple menu. They weren't customizable. You couldn't put all your crap there. You know, they just they won in the end, but they still put the little Apple menu there. Huh? I still think it was the right choice to put it back because I think it should be there for things like about this Mac and system preferences and shutdown and stuff like that. If you see a uh, screenshot, though, of, of the Apple, the little blue Apple in the middle, it's like it's jarring. Yeah, you know and like, I mean? like the, if the you menus had to wrap around it. Yeah. Like if you had too many, it was, <laughs> it was really weird. Really, really terrible. Uh, so the upper right has mostly been free at various times. Like it had the application switcher menu in classic Mac OS. But you could put, even before that, you could put little menu bar icons there. Or you could put the clock there. Like it's kind of been a free for all over there. But when Mac OS X came along, once Spotlight arrived, it grabbed that spot with its little magnifying glass icon and said, you know, no, Spotlight is there. You, you know, we own the upper right hand corner and then you can put your menu or extras and stuff on the other side of it and, you know, line up all your icons. But we really want spotlight because that's that was important enough to say, OK, upper left is like your main system menu and stuff. Upper right is search everything. And that's important enough to gain that spot. Now, in Mountain Lion, notification center says move over spotlight. Now, I'm I'm so important. I'm more important than searching your system. Even I'm I'm the, the second most important universally accessible place in the entire operating system. Apple menu is still number one because it's the upper left corner. And that's like, you know, the, where, where your support call to your mom always starts. Go to the Apple menu, select system preferences. Like, that's the way you do it. Even though they might have system preferences in their dock, which is a whole other issue that I tweeted about. I should talk about that on another show. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a rooted starting point. The menu bar is always visible. It's great to, to have it there. And so search used to be as important. But now notification center is even more important. Uh, and this is the central location where they, where you want to, where Apple wants everyone to be notified about stuff. It looks a lot like the iOS notification thing with the stupid linen background. Which you don't, really so you don't, don't like, like the linen background. I don't like it. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's just too much of it. And you can, well, you can't change it at all, of course, either. No, of course not. I mean, you know, I, I, obviously you could if you went and hacked in there and put it wherever you want, but it's, it's just too much linen, I think. Uh, I don't know, honestly, this is the thing about writing these kind of reviews it's hard to say what it's going to be like to live with something like this. It's like, well, haven't you been using these builds for a really long time? I have been, but A, I have been using them for my work because you can't, you know, you don't want to run developer preview one and try to do your work on it. It'll just be a mess. And B, what I'm doing with it is fiddling around, looking for stuff, testing things, doing screenshots. That's not the same as like living with it. Uh, and also, there aren't a lot of applications to take advantage of it at this point. Like there's Apple's bundled applications, but you have to wait for all the third-party apps to switch over to use Notification Center and stuff. So a year later, I think we'll really know how well Notification Center works as a way to notify things. Now, I'm, I'm not big on notifications. I, I turn almost all of them off in iOS. If an application has growl support on the Mac, I turn it off. I suspect I will keep almost all notifications off in Notification Center too. But for the ones I do want, I mostly like the appearance. I like the, the fact that it won't be some weird, crazy custom window for iCal popping up in the middle of everything, shoving it in my face to tell me about some stupid event. <laughs> like, I, I, and, you know, what, who else? Uh, Outlook has its own notification system. I hope they adopt Notification Center. I like that they'll all be corralled into one area and controlled from a central location, but I think I'll mostly turn uh, them off. Uh, and, it, and the other weird thing about Notification Center is they're putting stuff in there. Like, you can tweet from Notification Center doesn't seem like it should be a receiver of notifications, not so much a place to send something that could appear someplace else as a notification. Uh, I think Facebook is going to be integrated into there. I couldn't tell. Facebook, by the way, the Facebook integration is not in the release build. It will be out in the fall sometime. Uh, so I was glad not to have to talk about that because I really don't like Facebook. But I think Facebook's going to have some integration with that as well. I'm not sure. Uh, 
And, you know, if you look at the, the notifications settings, like even the preference pane looks like not so much the, the iPhone one, but like the iPad thing where you go in and pick uh, which applications can send notifications, what kind can they send, you know, should they play a sound, should they have a badge on their icon. It's very, very similar to the iOS notification system. And the iOS notification system is a big boost over what we had before, which was this ugly modal dialogues. But people who use Android and, and iOS tell me that the Android one is still nicer. And I, I confess that, like I said, I'm not a big notification person. I just turn most of them off in iOS. So maybe I'm not best qualified to say how well this notification system uh, works in practice on iOS or on the Mac. But I think it's it's reasonable. An argument can be made for it having the upper right-hand corner. Uh, and I will be happy when all the applications... Uh, finally start using Notification Center. And so I have one place to turn off all their notifications instead of going into each one and telling it not to pop up things or disabling growl for them or whatever. I mean, it makes sense. And it seems like this is this is the kind of thing that as more applications come out to support it, they'll say, well, why not use the built-in one? Why not, why not do that? We don't have to force them to install growl. We don't have to force them to install anything. We don't have to write something custom. Uh, we'll just give it to them in the way that they like it. I mean, that, that's... That's inevitably what, what's going to have to happen, right? Yeah, someone in the chat room just sent me a screenshot showing the Facebook integration in the chat. It's on Apple's website, like their unreleased build. So yeah, uh, it's just a little bit strange. Uh, and, it may, and who knows? I'll have to see. Like Obviously, when I'm testing, I wasn't using it as a Twitter client. Maybe Will I tweet from Notification Center? Am I ever on a Mac where my Twitter client of choice, Twitterific, is not running? If that was the case, maybe I would throw out a tweet from Notification Center, you know? I don't know. Uh, I'll have to see if I use it. Uh, but when you're not using it, it's unobtrusive. You can turn everything off. You can turn the whole thing off with a big switch. This is one of the tidbits that the reader sent in that I added to the article. You can option click that icon in the upper right to toggle it. Uh, I didn't find that on my own. Someone else sent it in, but I did add it to the article. Oh, look at that. Yeah, nice, huh? <laughs> nice. See, I learned something new. Yeah, I know. You should read my article. You I read, read you, it. You got, yeah, you read the early version. That wasn't in there, but it was oh. in there. It was in there, uh, you know... Five minutes after I got it in an email. Yes, John John has uh, extended an olive branch and let me read the pre-release version. But I should I should have probably waited and just crammed for it. But I knew I wouldn't have time uh, with this week uh, being a busy week. I knew I knew I wouldn't have time to get through the whole thing. Yeah, some of the chat room was saying that if the, if an application is closed, they don't get a notification about it. That's that gets back to iCloud integration. If if applications uh, are integrated with iCloud and, and they get iCloud push events, those will happen when the application is closed. Uh, but Messages is a good example of that. Uh, it's all well, it's a whole never, bunch of stuff. It's never really closed, is it? Yeah, iChat was the same way. Like you'd quit iChat, but you could say you could control your iChat availability through like the little bubble menu bar thing or whatever. Yeah. Like, as a preference to say uh, it's still Facebook, same way. Like you quit Facebook, uh, Facebook. FaceTime, uh, same way. If you quit the FaceTime application, you can still have it be like, oh, I'm still available on FaceTime. Uh, but the interesting thing with iCloud and, and Notification Center is that you can use the Notification Center API just to send local notifications. Like you just make an Mac app and you want stuff to appear in that little sidebar or little banners to appear and stuff. You can do that. Uh, but if you want to have notifications that are synchronized through iCloud and everything, like any other iCloud API, you must sell your application through the Mac App Store. So... It's not accurate to say you must sell through the Mac App Store to use Notification Center, meaning that big sidebar thing. But if you want to use it the way it's intended, like to have notifications that go on all your Macs and that are synchronized and stuff like that, 
you have to use iCloud to do that. And to use uh, to use the iCloud part of the Notification Center API, you must sell your Mac application through the Mac App Store. So this is one of many new APIs in Mountain Lion uh, and some that were around in Lion as well, where to use them, you must sell your application to the Mac App Store. I, I, I don't know if you want to describe that as a carrot or a stick. I guess it's kind of a carrot and like, hey, this feature is nice. Wouldn't you like to use this feature? Or is it a stick saying uh, users are going to expect this feature to exist, and if you want it, you better get in the Mac App Store. So we're we're beating developers, you know, into getting into the Mac App Store. Uh, but either way, that's it's clearly focused on that. And I think maybe on this part or some other part of the thing I talk about, like why would they make something the uh, Mac App Store only? Is it just about encouraging people to get on the Mac App Store because that's what Apple thinks is best, or? Is it also at least partly, not like entirely, but like one factor it seems like has to be that iCloud is a free service. And users sign up for iCloud, they don't pay Apple any money. Uh, you can pay the money if you want more stuff like more storage or so on. But you can just get like a free iCloud account, which will cover most of your needs for uh, basic stuff for no money. But Apple has to run those servers. It has a story or whatever it is, five gigabytes of stuff that you put there. Uh, it. it you're costing Apple money by using iCloud, but yet you didn't pay for it. So one way to recoup some of those costs is to say, well, if, if you want to write an application that's going to store preferences in iCloud, that's going to synchronize data through iCloud, it's going to use our push notification servers. Uh, we're not getting any money from your customer to do that. We would like to get a little bit of money from you. So we'll take 30% of your application sale, and that will hopefully help us cover some of the costs incurred by your application. And uh, Apple, of course, has many throttles on API usage for iCloud and stuff like that to try to prevent like you know all right right i write an application for the mac app store but it's really badly behaving it hammers apple servers and now i'm costing them money and and you know uh and as people in the chat room said yes free apps can use this stuff too but like the idea with uh, with all the mac app stores that hopefully the non-free applications will subsidize the free ones uh, and especially since like you know someone wants to make money somewhere so even free apps have in-app purchases and apple gets 30 percent of those as well uh, i think that i also talked about in the icloud section not here in notifications uh, I can't even tell what time it is because the timer started again. When we, when we but, well, yeah, no, it's it's it, we're probably due. All right, probably due for another. I mean, you need to, you need to rest. You're wor- I mean, you're working overtime here anyway, so you take a breather. It's hover.com. Simplified domain management. Just registered another domain with these guys today. It's a, se- a secret secret project. But I, I have a admittedly, I have a little problem. When it comes to not not the kind of not like a Merlin Man esque level of problems, he registers hundreds of domains a year, I, I believe. I, I I've, I'm kind of a little bit below that, but I use Hover.com for everything, uh, and you should too. Uh, first of all, if for no other reason, you're going to get ten percent off if you use the code Dan sent me. So you go to Hover.com/slash Dan sent me. That's a, a great reason there. But if you want to get a .com .net whatever it is, the new one .co, which I really like. TV, of course, I'm a fan of that. You can do all of this stuff there. And the reason why you should, obviously, the discount, not a bad reason, but I'll give you some better reasons. The interface is simple. It's straightforward. It's elegant. You don't struggle to use it. You go there. There's a search box. You type the domain name you want. Done. Oh, it's not available. They'll come up with some suggestions for you. You're not sure what domain name you want. You have some ideas. Type in a few keywords. See what comes back. It's really, really cool. And their whole emphasis, their whole goal, the whole reason that they exist is based around customer support. I mean, one of the reasons that other domain name services make it so difficult 
to do the things that you want to do is that they, they really want you to do the more expensive things. They don't want you. They really don't want you to just register a domain name. They so they they put all kinds of sales pitches on there. They put all kinds of check boxes you have to uncheck, and it makes it seem like they're required, and you're never really sure. No, with with hover, it's like there's a little plus box next to the domain name. You hit the plus box, you can check out, and you're done. I mean that's it. And the only time you hear from them is when your domain name is up for renewal. And their their business model, their concept, their hope is that. You'll stick around because you don't like all of that other junk. There's one checkbox when you're registering. It's do you want to keep your information private because they have a free who is protection thing? Free. Would you like to keep your information? Oh, you would? Okay, check you know, the box. That's it. That's the only thing. And if you're worried about transferring your domain, if that's going to be a problem, if that, there's going to be trouble, they actually have a transfer uh, domain and valet service where they do everything for you. They do it for you. You don't even have to do anything. And they do email hosting, which is really cool. They have their toll-free number on the main page in case you run into trouble. They actually read their Twitter account, and they'll answer your questions. And like I said, go to uh, hover.com slash Dan sent me, and you'll get 10% off everything you do anytime you do something over at hover.com. Thanks very much to those guys for making this show possible. Someone in the chat room whose name I will not try to pronounce says system preferences should be settings please email apple i actually told apple that i mentioned it to him that's a joke and i wrote it in my review which this person may or may not have read or may have forgotten uh, but we'll get to the names uh when we get to the application section uh, so the next section here is about what i call document model changes for lack of a better term and there was a big section in the line review that talked about all the things apple was doing to try to make the way Mac users deal with documents uh, less fraught with peril. Uh, and the model, <laughs> as in many cases, was iOS, where in iOS, people don't deal with documents, really. Like, you tap the little icon, and stuff happens, and you hit the home button, and, like, you don't... There's no save command. There's no menu bar. There's no open save dialog box. All the things that we take for granted on the Mac never existed on iOS. And most people didn't pitch a fit, even the nerd people... Because they're like, well, this is just, it's a new platform and this is the way it works on iOS. And it's kind of annoying for application developers to have to do all sorts of things to make the thing autosave when you hit the home button and so you don't lose data and restore to your previous state. Like, but that was all on the developers. But as far as users are concerned, you don't miss what you never had. And so maybe a couple of nerds said, boy, it would be nice if I had some. But like, I, I, I've still never even heard a nerd say to me or online say, you know what would make this iOS application better? A save button. I just don't. Have you ever heard anyone suggest like manual saving on an iOS app? <laughs> That's not been a topic of conversation I've, I've ever heard. I, I've never seen it anywhere. Maybe there's some kind of obscure app where saving actually takes a long time. And people would like manual control. I just have never heard it. But if you take a platform that has had manual document saving for you know decades and decades and you try to take that away, boy, will you hear it. Uh, so that's what Apple did in line. They introduced autosave, versioning, uh, all sorts of other things to try to change the document model to be this weird hybrid of like it's more like ios you want the benefits of ios where like there's nothing you can do to screw up oh you forgot to save don't worry it's okay uh, or, or you actually you didn't mean that change to be saved don't worry you can get back to the old version and uh you, you can't remember where your documents are just quit the app when you relaunch it the apps will be back where they were just like when you quit an ios app and you relaunch it it's supposed to bring you back to where you were before uh and again, that for iOS, that's not an OS feature, really. Developers have to do that, and it's a big pain. Uh, but they do it because that's the expected experience on iOS. And Apple is trying to say, oh, the Mac should be like that, too. In fact, if you shut down the whole computer, 
when you turn the computer back on, we want it, ideally, we want it to be just like it was before you shut it down. All your open documents still there, all your windows in the same place, all your applications launched. Uh, uh, but like many things that Apple did in Lion, this ran afoul of both the, you know, you move my cheese people, of which I am one, probably. And also practical concerns like, well, the Mac is not iOS and it's it, every Mac doesn't have flash memory and these applications take up a lot more memory and there's much more disk I.O. you need to do. So like people, nerds would be annoyed when you if you shut down your computer and then when you start it back up again, you got to wait 10 minutes for all your applications to relaunch for all your files to open. Oh, but what if that server isn't available and that was open from a server? Then you might get some sort of problem there where your application complains that it can't find the document or maybe you didn't notice that it couldn't find it because the thing wasn't mounted. And, uh, and then autosave. If people are used to the manual way and they know the manual way and they like the manual way, when you take it away, they're saying, but that's that's not how I work. Like the mental model in my head is these changes are not saved until I hit the save button. But now you're going to save them behind my back and I quit and I think I didn't save them. But then really, I, I changed my document on disk. I don't like that. And so there was much consternation about that. In my line review, I was generally positive about it because I knew what they were going for. And I think what they're going for is good. And even though I am used to the old way, uh, and of kind of you know everything about the way these computers is built around that, I recognize that that's just because that's what I'm used to, and I would prefer it if I didn't have those concerns because all of us, even the expert users, have like accidentally saved over something with a newer version, right? Or maybe you didn't notice and you hit select all and then and hit backspace and then you didn't notice because you scrolled somewhere else, else and you hit save and those changes are gone. Or the application crashes and you had unsaved changes. And and I do like state preservation. One of the first blog posts I made on my now defunct Fatbits blog at Ars Technica was about the state of Mac uh, web browsing. And I, I like the fact that when I launch, relaunch a web browser, I want it to show me all my windows and tabs that were open before. I don't want to have to restore my state because I'm not encouraged to arrange my working environment to suit my needs if I know that all that arrangement is going to be pointless because as soon as I quit the app, it's all gone. Uh, so the more state can be preserved across the computing experience, the more likely I am to make things just so. Because I'll know that the effort I'm putting into that to, to arrange things just the way I want them so they're easily accessible in places where I like them, that, that work will be preserved. Uh, so all of that is part of the of Line's document model changes. Mountain Line is trying to say, all right, we're still sticking with that, but we recognize that we kind of did a few things in ways that, we, that, that, uh, that angered people or that didn't fit exactly. And we know there are people out there who just have decades of experience doing it the old way. And yes, eventually those people are going to die, but they're all still alive now. And so we should help them out a little bit. Uh, and so they they did so many very small, subtle changes. But I think they really do have profound effects, at least to nerds who know about the settings. So the first thing is, is two little checkboxes and system preferences. And one of them says, ask, ask to keep changes when closing documents. Uh, and the second one says, close windows when quitting an application. And those two checkboxes, not that they bring it all the way back to the pre-line model, like a lot of people were like, those checkboxes are fine, but I want a big honking checkbox that says, act like Snow, Le <laughs> right. uh, Snow Leopard. And that's not there. And I, that, that would be an admission of defeat. Like, they've decided that we can't do this. This is more like saying, all right, we will provide individual toggles for these particular behaviors. If you're the one who is annoyed by the fact that when you close a document, it automatically gets saved, would you rather be asked whether you want to keep these saves, uh, these changes, like the old way? But Fine. But if you're okay with the windows being restored, that's a separate option. I mean, that was always an option to restore windows on shutdown and stuff like that. But now they're uh, saying close windows when quitting an application. It's like, oh, every time i got to quit an app, i got to go through and close all these windows because if I don't, when I relaunch the app, they'll be open. Preview, this annoyed a lot of people about because they double-click a JPEG or something in the, in the finder, and it would open a preview, and they'd be like, oh, that's cool, and they'd quit, they'd quit preview because they're you know, an experienced Mac user, so they just do Command-Q, 
And then the next time they double click an image in the finder, it opens in preview, but so does the one they had open before because they never closed it. They just quit preview and it's restoring the documents. And if that is driving you batty, there's a checkbox for you about that there. Uh, another thing that, that drove people nuts in, in Snow Leopard, Snow Leopard, in Lion, I'll get these damn cats right eventually, uh, was <laughs> the, uh, the auto-saving mechanism uh, and, and how it would like uh, ask you to, uh, to keep changes or revert them uh, it basically meant you were trapped in that document. So you couldn't do the type of thing where you would do before you'd speculatively change the document. Or, or the other thing is where you'd like to just save the document under another name in a new location because, like, you couldn't escape that document. Everything you did was automatically saved. And if, you know, it's like, but I want to make a bunch of changes, but I don't want those changes to be in this document like the one I'm editing. Really, I want them to be in a different place. Like, that's a model people would work on. They would open a document, make a whole bunch of changes for 10 minutes, and then they'd go save as and that would put the changed version of the document in a different place. And as far as they're concerned, they never modified the one that they opened. But in Lion, all that time they've been doing that work, they have been modifying the one they were open. And they don't have to revert that one and do all this stuff. And so Lion had a duplicate command where you could open a document, select the duplicate command. It would give you a duplicate of that document, make your changes there, and then save the document to a new location. And people did not like that at all. I didn't particularly like it either. I mean, you could see how, you know, it's equivalent to the old way of doing it, it's just a different series of steps, but people didn't like those steps. So now they have a way, first of all, save as is back if you do, there's a command, there's a keyboard shortcut for it and everything, or you just command, option, shift, S, or whatever it is. If you hold down the option key when you go to the save menu, it, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these menu commands, I know a lot of people don't know this about the Mac, and I should have been more clear about it, but sometimes there'll be a menu command on the Mac that's just like, you know, command, shift, you know, P or something, not P, command, shift, uh, L, right? And there'll be another keyboard shortcut that's Option Command Shift L, and like, wow, I didn't know if you do Option Command Shift L, it does some variant of the behavior. In most cases, that also means that if you hold down the Option key and select and pull down the menu, the keyboard shortcut for that will change to Option Command Shift L, and the name of that command will change to what the variant is. So this is the same as with Save As. If you hold down the Option key and pull down the file menu, the command, the command, what is it? Uh, is it the save command? One of the commands that was there that had the command uh, command shift S uh, keyboard shortcut, it will actually say save as now. It's a visual representation of the fact that if you hold down the option key when triggering this keyboard shortcut, you get save as. So save as is back for expert users, and they changed the behavior of the duplicate command. Uh, what, is, what is the right wheel binding there? It's Yeah, it, it still says duplicate, but it, it's bound to the previous save as command and what happens now is instead of just making a duplicate document it does that but then it immediately lets you change the name of it it, it lets you rename the document from the title bar which i think looks really weird looking but in practice what it means is that this you if you're a keyboard type of user it's like open a document command shift s type new name hit return uh you can get the same effect as save as with far fewer I don't know. I don't know if it's fewer keystrokes, fewer motions, fewer mental steps, I guess, than the old duplicate and save model, especially since duplicate didn't have a default keyboard shortcut. So you always had to go to that stupid menu. And anybody who, who uses keyboard commands for a lot of things is going to be really annoyed by that. I took a long time trying to figure this stuff out. And as you can see, I still don't have it all straight in my head. In the review, I think I did a good job of explaining it. I haven't actually had any corrections to this section, except for the people telling me that the save as command is back if you hold down the option key. It's like, I guess I just assume people knew that if you had option, you can also hold down the option key and hold it. But I think that is a good idea. Well, I don't know. 
I'm of two minds in that. It's kind of like the library folder being hidden. Uh, one mind is like, people don't like really complicated keyboard shortcuts that involve seven modifier keys because they're hard to type. So for those people, it's easier to say, just hold down the option key and then use the mouse to select the file menu. And there you'll see save as and it's back. But on the other hand, holding down a modifier key while pulling down a menu is already something that, that novice users are never going to do on their own. And when you prompt them to do it, it may be a foreign thing. Like, is that something that people do frequently? Hold a modifier key while also using the mouse to pull down a menu? Uh, it's just kind of a consistency issue where they say, well, look, if, if that's the keyboard shortcut, then when you hold on the option key, it should show as the keyboard shortcut and change the name of the thing to save as. Uh, they also put a rename thing right in, right in the pop-up menu on the title bar, so you can do inline renaming uh, on demand. Uh, they changed the revert menu item to have a submenu where you can look at, you know, it, you can revert to the last opened one. They, they do a lot of things where they distinguish between the last time you manually saved and the last time you automatically saved. I'm not sure if it's still different than the mental model of manual saving, and I'm not sure if this model will be easier to appeal for people to change to than the old one, but it does provide more options. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't have the benefit of being easy to explain. That's the benefit of the iOS model. It's easy to explain because there's never been anything before it, and it's just the way it works, and it's just no saving. Everything is always automatically saved, period, the end. Really easy to explain to someone. Trying to explain to someone how document sa- how Apple wants document saving to work on the Mac. I mean, what is it? It took me like, you know, many, many screenfuls of screenshots and text to attempt to explain how it works. And even then, it's hard to keep straight. Uh, so overall, I think what they've done to the document model is a big improvement over what they had in Lion while still trying to retain all the benefits they had in Lion. I like it better. I will probably have a lot of those checkboxes checked simply because I'm used to the old way. Uh, I, I do like autosave. I think BBEdit does the best job of any application that does autosave on its own. Uh, but with the proper checkboxes configured the way I want them, TextEdit behaves in, in a pretty nice way. That's my model application for, for you know documents for the way Apple wants things to work. And I'm pretty happy with it. The same thing with Preview. Uh, with the uh, free Restore Me Not extension, you can control on an individual basis uh, which applications restore their open documents. And I've been using that for a while in, uh, in Lion. I'm assuming it still works in Mountain Lion. But anyway, I think it'll be much happier with the document model in Mountain Lion. I think so will most expert users. I'm not sure how it will help or hurt novice users because really it is kind of, it's not backsliding so much, but the fact that those options exist allows those of us who are not used to the Lion way to get some of our familiarity back, but the defaults are still basically the way Lion worked. Uh, so maybe maybe novice users won't notice it at all. Well, we are never going to get through this. <laughs> we might have to. I mean, you know, I don't want you to rush through it. Yeah. No. Well, I guess we'll have to we'll have to split it up. Uh, or I'll just be more concise. We'll see. So the next bit is dictation. I dictation is a feature that existed on iOS before. Noticing a, a trend here. A lot of these things existed on iOS before. It looks like it does on iOS. It's got the the little Siri icon showing the what what is that kind of mic called? You might know this, like the capsule shaped mic. Yeah, that's a safe term for it. You don't know the term. It's like there is what's wrong with capsule? I don't know. Isn't there a name for that kind of mic? People know exactly what you mean. We don't have to get all fancy on them. All right. Anyway, it's the Siri icon, but now on your Mac, and like it it shows this little popover while you dictate. It works the same as iOS dictation does, where you say stuff, it records it, then it sends it over the network to Apple servers, where it pr- gets processed, and then the Apple server sends back the text, and it gets shoved in there. Uh, that means you need a network connection. 
to use this dictation. And, and uh, as I think I said in the review on iOS, it makes sense because speech recognition requires a lot of memory to like look up the different sounds and stuff like that, and a lot of computing power to figure out what was said. And iOS devices don't have that much memory and don't have that much computing power, so it makes much more sense to take the speech on your iOS device, send it over the network to an Apple server where they have tons of memory and tons of computing power, and send the result back. But Macs can do dictation locally. They have lots more memory than iOS devices, and they have much more powerful CPUs. Uh, on the other hand, if they did it that way, that would require making a client-side implementation of their dictation software, and they have chosen not to do that. Instead, this is basically like, look, we already have these server infrastructure for iOS. Let's just leverage that and bring dictation to the Mac, and they have. Uh, people were asking whether I would use dictation to write my review and anyone who has used dictation on iOS I would hope that would answer that question because you speak you say something and then you have to well you have to hit a key or something to activate the thing that says okay you're listening to me now then you say your thing into whatever microphone you have then you have to hit the button again and then it, it takes your recorded text sends it up to the server puts it back in its text if you want to start talking again, you got to activate dictation again. It's not a real-time process, whereas Drag and Dictate, the feature, the software that I actually use on my Mac to write a vast majority of my review, I talk and words appear on the screen. I just keep talking, and they keep appearing, and I keep talking, and they keep appearing. It's real-time. It all happens locally. There's no server thing. I don't have to hit any buttons to activate and deactivate. And I don't. And that more, most importantly, I don't have to guess as to what it's going to think I said. Because in Dictation, you say a sentence... And then you hit the button to activate and you wait. And who knows what's going to come back? You could get egg freckles back. You know, you could, you could get <laughs> eat, up, eat up Martha. You don't know what you're going to get back. And then if you, got, if you got the wrong thing back, you have to change it. Because even when Dragon Dictate gets something wrong and I don't pay attention because I'm like drifting off somewhere, I go back and read it later and I'm like, what was I saying here? Because this word makes no sense. And so I had to figure out what word sounds like that word that I could have possibly been saying that would make sense. Uh, so that's why when I'm dictating, I'm looking at the words as they appear. Because So when it gets one wrong, I can correct it immediately so I'm not confused later at, at what I said. So this is not a product that's going to be used to write long-form things. It's mostly for, like, it's telling they demoed it at WWDC by uh, Craig Federighi. I think he sent a tweet or something. Yeah, something like that. And that's, that's the perfect length for the demo. It's the same, I it's said, basically, think of it the same way that you would think of dictating something for your iPhone, where you might send off a quick tweet a quick uh, SMS, a quick message. It's, you're not going to sit there and use it the way that you're using your dictation software to essentially write a 3,000-page article. Yeah. Or even just like an email to someone. I don't think you would use dictation on the Mac to write an email uh, because you can't dictate the whole seven-sentence email. I mean, you could, but like, wouldn't you be wondering? Because sometimes the result of, all right, I say my three sentences, hi, nice seeing you this weekend, hope we can get together on such and such a date, uh, let me know, I'll be at home, but you can call me after 5 p.m. Then you hit the button that sends what the recorded version of what you set up to Apple servers. And then you wait. And the result of that waiting process could be a little head shake of the dictation popover icon, and it said, nope, sorry, it didn't work. Servers were down, didn't get a response, couldn't figure it out. And then you don't remember what you just said, right? So you just wasted like it's making dictation take longer you know it's not more efficient than typing assuming you're, you're able to type it's and now it's taking longer now you're pissed off it, and the other option is that the results that come back could be nonsensical because there was noise in the room or you couldn't figure out what you said or you have a weird accent or you or you pronounce something strangely and you don't know that until the end 
so I don't think it's viable for dictating anything longer than a sentence or two. Uh, and if you wanted to do multiple sentences, it's really annoying to activate, say, a sentence, deactivate, wait, right. check. Active, it's, you know, this is totally a feature that was added because they had the infrastructure already. Uh, and I guess it helps build the Siri RAM with the little microphone thing. And it works exactly as well as the iOS ones do, you know. So I think Dragon has nothing to worry about. And, and another one of the minor corrections, which I will not actually correct probably, is that in my dictation screenshot, I did the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. But the actual sentence is jumps because the point of that sentence is to use every, linger, uh, every letter in the uh, English alphabet in a single sentence. And there's no S if you say jumped. You already have a D for dog and you already have E's elsewhere. And the, so it should be the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, but I'm not retaking that screenshot. So I'm just going to have to live with that every night right. when I sleep and so will everybody else. Uh, so now we're finally on to the application section. Heading there, refinement and realignment. Uh, refinement is like the things we talked about before where Lion did some big changes to a lot of built-in applications. And this is not going back on them, but tweaking them, refining them slightly. And realignment has to do with uh, making the applications match up with their iOS counterparts. So the first one here is address book, but it's not called address book anymore. It's called contacts. And why is it called contacts? Because that's what it's called in iOS. Uh, and it's actually a better name. It's, you know, I mean, they call it contacts on iOS, I'm assuming, because address book might wrap on springboard and it looks uglier. But contacts, it's one word. People know what it is. It's fine. Uh, in line, they changed it to look like the iOS contacts thing. Like they changed the graphics and now it looks like this big open book thing. And I complained about that a lot in uh, the line review. That was my little uh, You were, you were very there. upset about that. Yeah, the, the caption on that, I think, was uh, this: uh, these graphics are writing checks this user interface can't cache. Because the, the graphics of this thing were a big open book. And you're like, oh, I can just grab this page and riffle through it, and I can close and open the book. It's like, no, it really what it is is a two-pane window made to look like a book, but it doesn't behave like a book. I mean, books don't... And then there's, like, closed widgets in the corner. Books don't have window widget closed things, but they're really hard to see, and the buttons are strange, and... It, it's just a big mess. I, I did not like it. Lots of people didn't like it. The biggest functional complaint people had about the uh, address book in Lion was that they took away three-pane view because you used to be able to have when it was just a normal window and not trying to look like a book. It had one pane for groups, one pane for contacts within that group, and then one detail view. But when you do a book, you just have two panes because when you open a book, you got two sides, the left page and the right page. And they sacrificed the functionality of the application to fit within the visual metaphor of the book, which is stupid because who cares? Like, why do you need it to look like a book? So in Lion in, in Mountain Lion, they brought back the three-pane view, but they did it by dividing the left-hand pane into two sections. One is for the groups, and then the second part of that is for the list of contacts, and then the right-hand side is all for detail. Because they couldn't just add another pane because the two sides of a book have to be the same size, right? It would look weird if one half of the book was bigger than the other half of the book because when you close it, it wouldn't close right. And so they're still kind of a slave to this visual metaphor they've got here. And I, I think I talked about it in the line review, uh, and I'm not sure if I, I reiterated here, but like, why do they keep doing this? Why do they make it look like a book? I think I had a, a past episode where I complained about iBooks, but why do they have to make this look like a physical object? It's not as if people are unfamiliar with contact information on computers at this point. It's not as if they need to, sit to, uh, to lure people in to say, I give you something familiar. And the worst part about it is they, if they give a familiar appearance, you would hope that they would be leveraging the things people know about the familiar object. Oh, I know about books. Books you can open and close. Books you turn the pages on. Stuff like that. They don't leverage that. Uh, like, you can't grab and turn the pages 
in, in many cases. Some cases you can, but you never know, can I turn this page? Can I not turn the page? Uh, the thickness of the pages on either side don't really reflect anything. They're always the same. So that way it tricks you. you opening and closing the book is not something that has any meaning within the application. Uh, it still behaves like a regular window with the widgets and everything. It has little view controls on it. Like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't behave like a regular book. It behaves like an application made to look like a book. So if you actually trick someone into saying, oh, uh, that looks like a familiar item to me. And I, the skills I have that I've developed on that familiar item in the real world, now I can transfer them to this user interface. No, you can't. Uh, and you still can't. And I think the interface is still being damaged to try to fit within this metaphor. The one thing it does give you is warm fuzzies. And I think Apple values that. That it, it makes you feel, it's a whimsical. It makes you smile a little bit, maybe. Oh, it looks like a book. Uh, and the thing that Apple itself has said many times is they want th these handful of applications to look distinctive, to stand out. So, like, it doesn't just blend in with the sea of other regular windows. Uh, I, I brought this up with them in, in my call. and didn't get anywhere, really, on it because I wouldn't, uh, I don't know. I, once, once I have Apple people there, I would start talking about things I knew they weren't going to give solid answers to. Uh, but, like, one of the things I think about when I see these applications is, all of the past WWDCs and, and other things that Apple said where they encourage developers, don't make custom controls. Use the standard controls. Use the standard buttons, the standard title bars, and everything like that. Because then when we, Apple, change the look of the standard controls, you will benefit from our work. If you try to use custom controls and we change the look of the operating system, which we do from time to time, you're going to have your custom-drawn control that looks like you know 10.2 embedded in an application that looks like 10.5, and it will stand out and be ugly and you'll have work to do. Please, just use our standard controls. But the current day Apple says any important application that we make cannot use standard controls. No standard title bars. Uh, the buttons that we use, like under the covers, obviously they're standard buttons, but I'm talking about the appearance. You know, Even when they just have a regular window with a title bar, they can't resist making it wood or something. Like uh, uh, GarageBand was one of the first ones that had a wood title bar. It's otherwise a normal title bar, but, it, but it's wooden. And this book thing, yeah, the whole thing, there's not even a title bar at all. The whole thing looks like a book. Uh, which it flies in the face of their previous advice, but it also means that the bar, the barrier to entry for someone making a Mac application is higher because before you could just hire a graphic designer to do your icon and a couple of graphics and a splash screen or something. Now you need like a full-time guy to do your whole user interface because if you just use standard controls, you don't look nearly as fancy or interesting as Apple's completely custom interfaces. And again, the, under the covers, these are all, you know, NS buttons and all the NS scroll views. Like, they're standard controls controls. But I'm talking about, like, the appearance of them, that they're customizing the appearance. These are not controls that other people can use. You can't say, I would like to make a book app and say, like, click a, a box in Interface Builder or in Xcode now because it's folded in, saying, please use book appearance for this window, like you could with the textured appearance for Brush Metal. Uh, it really it requires dedicated uh, graphical design. Uh, now, in the line review, I had a whole section about how I'm not necessarily hung up on having things all look the same for the sake of looking the same. As long as you can tell it's a button, I don't really care how it looks. And, it, it, you know, I, I put all this information about uh, from uh, Bruce Tognazzini's uh, book, Togon Interface, where he talked about in the early, early Mac, people like to say, oh, Apple's doing stuff now they never would have done. Well, here's an example from like System 7 days when they were designing stuff. And a specific section that says things don't have to look the same. They just need to be identifiable by the user. And the example of this little puzzle piece, icons for extensions. And there was like four different variants of the puzzle piece, but they all look like puzzle pieces. And so if you knew puzzle piece equals extension and you saw something like a puzzle piece, you didn't get flipped out over the fact that, oh, but that puzzle piece is vertical and this one is rotated 90 degrees. I can't tell what that is. You could tell it's a puzzle piece. So 
to the extent that Apple is able to make things that look nice and different, but you can still tell what they are, that's fine. But I still don't like how they are willing to sacrifice functionality and uh, not just functionality, but like appropriateness, like uh, the ability to see information because they have to fit like within this book metaphor. You can't have the groups pane, the combination of the groups pane and the list pane has to be exactly the same size as the detail pane. If you want to make the list bigger, you have to also make the detail pane bigger. Even if making the detail pane bigger makes no sense uh, and doesn't help you, you have to do it because the book metaphor must be maintained. Uh, but I mean, I mean, they're trying there. They're, they're, they're trying to address some of the concerns. You don't like three, no three-pane view, now you got a three-pane view. It's not a great three-pane view. The old three-pane view might have been better, but at least it's there. Uh, I spent a lot of time in this section talking about the share buttons, which use that little... I think it's called the action button in iOS. It's a horizontal rectangle with an arrow leaping out of it and to the right. Those buttons are everywhere in Apple's new applications, and it lets you basically share a piece of information without saving it out to a file or dragging it onto another application. It's all, uh, you know, the, the way iOS works, where there is no finder as a sort of in-between, go-between point for data. When you want to share something in iOS, there's got to be one of those buttons somewhere or something similar where you can say, I'm in this app, from this app, send a tweet with this picture, uh, send an email with this thing as an attachment, uh, you know, other stuff like that. So share buttons are appearing all over uh, Mac applications and Mountain Lion, and they let you do things like that. Email, uh, this contact information to someone. Send an iMessage with this contact information. Uh, sometimes you can. Sometimes the interface is directly within the application. In fact, in most cases it is. It'll just bring up a little dialog box that says, oh, I want to send a tweet with this picture. Well, right there on the thing that you're doing, a little tweet sheet will come down, and you'll be able to write your tweet and send it without leaving the application, which has less meaning on the Mac because maybe your Twitter client is already open and sitting three inches away on the screen, uh, whereas in iOS, like, your app is filling the screen, you don't know what else is running and stuff like that, but in general, Apple is trying to help, once again, novice users not have to deal with the finder or the file system. If there's some piece of information that you can see and you want to share it with somebody, you should be able to do it right there without worrying about, oh, now I have to extract this somehow and put it in an in-between place, then go to another application, then grab that and stick it in here. They want you to be able to do it like you can in iOS. And I think iOS has shown that model is pretty successful because people are much more likely to tweet a picture or send something as a, as a, a text message or something like that. If within the application, that stuff is all there. Oh, my God, the phone again. Sorry, hang on a second. You answer the phone, we'll do our, do our last spot. How's that? Sourcebits.com. These guys are great. They do something called design-led engineering. What that means is you have an idea for something. You tell them how you want it to work, and they turn your idea into something real. And what kind of idea am I talking about? I'm talking about... An iPhone app, sure. iOS app, iPad, they do that. Android, web, Mac. They also do web design, but they bring all of these things together in a way that not really anybody else can because they're experts in these different areas. So you can go to them and you can say, I have an idea for an application that has a web backend, that has an iOS piece, that has an Android piece. And by the way, I need like a whole site designed. Well, they know how to do this. And don't take my word for it. Go to sourcebits.com and you'll see portfolio up the top. Pick any one of the categories. You want to build a, a Facebook app? Click Facebook. You'll see they've done a handful of Facebook apps. They've done tons and tons of mobile apps. And yeah, I mean, they even do stuff for uh, the platforms we don't always talk about uh, very much on these shows like BlackBerry. I mean, if you have a strategy and you want to build an application and you need to get it out in front of everybody, they know how to do this. 
they don't waste your time, and they get back to you, and they can get started within a week. So if you've got a fast turnaround, if that's important, if you're trying to get a launch date, if you started out by hiring a couple kids in college, and a month went by, and you didn't really get anything, and two months went by, and they invoiced you, and you paid it, and they didn't really give you what you were hoping for, and you've still got to hit that launch date, SourceBits can do it. Uh, these guys are really, really great. I know these guys, and I can tell you they know exactly how to get this stuff done and done right and done the first time. So go to sourcebits.com, check out what they can do, and uh, let them know that we sent you. Thanks very much to SourceBits for making this show possible. I just forget to turn that ringer off. It's off now. It's all right. All right. Where was I? Share buttons. Oh, yeah. Sidetrack on share buttons. But uh, that was just contacts, formerly known as address book. Calendar. Calendar was also majorly mutated in Lion. It got this weird stitched leather thing instead of a regular title bar. The the little pages of the calendar looked like they were tear-off pages. I I ranted about this in the Lion review about paper calendars have limitations that computer calendars should not have. The main one is that a paper calendar, like a desk calendar that you'd put on your desk where you tear off the pages and stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, first of all, who even has those these days anymore? And secondly, they can only show one thing. They can show like a month at a time or five months or whatever, but it's a piece of paper. It can't change. Well, on the computer, it's not a piece of paper. And it's for time especially, it's frequently useful to view time not as just months or just weeks or just days, but as sometimes you just want it as an arbitrary stream of days. Sometimes you want it in different chunks, particularly at month boundaries, where if you have something that's going on that spans a month boundary, dealing with it on a paper calendar it's a pain because you had to keep flipping. Okay, this is the last two days in June. This is the first two days in July. And like you got to go back and forth and back and forth. There's no reason you have to do that on a computer. You can show them all together as a linear series of weeks or just as a big, like it doesn't have to be organized in the same way. And yet this calendar is so devoted to the paper way of doing things, even though like it will show the beginning of the next month as well. It's so devoted to the, the paper way of doing things that you don't have those benefits because they're stuck on this metaphor. And then you have the little tear off pieces like when you when you tear off your calendar it leaves little pieces of paper where you tore it off they visually put that on their interface so that was all in lion and people didn't like it and what i said about it in lion was for the most part you can tell what all the things do in this application in the toolbar that looks like leather or something which is weird uh you can tell what's a button and what's not the window widgets you can tell their window widgets they're they're not like they are an address book they're all faded out and stuff like <laughs> that the little scrims of paper are annoying but they don't have much functional impact unless you're OCD and just drives you nuts that they're there and you can go and hack <laughs> the app and get rid of them. Uh, but they, again, in line, they compromised the interface because the list of calendars was in a popover because, you know, a, a paper thing doesn't have a list of calendars. Because what would you do? Poke the piece of paper and change which calendars are visible? That doesn't have any paper equivalent. It said, oh, well, we'll put the list of calendars, like your work calendar, your home calendar, whatever. We'll put those calendars in a popover. And that's annoying because people have a lot of calendars. They want to be able to switch between them easily. And so that was all because paper calendars don't have an equivalent interface and they wanted to show off popovers. Uh, but it turns out that the calendar list is important enough that people complained. And so in the mountain line calendar, now you can get a proper sidebar that shows your list of calendars just like you could before, even though it doesn't fit within the paper calendar metaphor instead of it being a popover. Uh, and they took away the stitching on the leather, which drove a lot of people nuts. Uh, Instead, you know, the le- it still has a leather top, but they don't have the stitching on there anymore. And so it makes the toolbar, uh, you know, not as big as it was before. It gives you some room back for your content. But like I said in the line review, the, I think the main complaint people had with Calendar was that it was ugly. And I agree that it was kind of ugly. 
And so you can make up, you can retroactively make up all these usability reasons and talk about how they shouldn't be imitating physical things and they're compromising the interface. But if it's ugly, that's also a factor. Like that should be factored in. And that's a matter of opinion. It's subjective. Someone thought it was good looking. Uh, a lot of people disagree. I still find it kind of ugly and it kind of puts me off that application. Uh, but, you know, Apple, that, that's fashion and subjectivity and there's not so much Apple can do about that. If it looked really cool, I would, on the other hand, I would be inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt on the things where they, oh, they compromise functionality, but it looks really awesome. That's not the case. I don't think it looks awesome. Maybe you think it does look awesome and you're willing to forgive them, but uh, that's the world of software in uh, 2012. Things like that are actually, fashion is actually a factor. Like it is in so many other things, you know. Uh, reminders application, an application that didn't even exist before. This looks, once again, like its iOS counterpart, as does Calendar, as does Contacts. Uh, very much like its iOS counterpart. And this is a case where I actually I don't mind the look. Again, it doesn't look, no normal title bar. It's all black. I can't figure out what this is supposed to be. I like to think of it as black plastic, but lots of other people tell me they think it's Naugahyde. Do you have any idea what you think Reminders is? Yeah, I, I would... I, I'm going to say no to black pla- to plastic because it has a, a little bit of a texture, and if it was plastic, it would be shiny and smooth. I'll go with Naugahyde. I mean, like textured plastic. Like for example, the bottom of the mic stand that I'm using right now. You know, the mic stand bottoms. Yeah. that's not plastic, but it's like textured metal. Right, but that's supposed to look like that uh, aluminum uh, stuff. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it, like, I think it's actually kind of handsome. It doesn't look terrible. It does I not mean, look they, bad. But why? Why does that? not bother you the way that the torn paper at the top of notes bothers you yeah well i mean there's no torn paper here. No they torn do paper. they do a lined paper thing like it looks like paper uh, lined paper from school where there's the thin red lines going down the left side and then the thin blue lines yeah i, I actually think it looks great i think it, it's the one it's the one new app in this style that i'm with you this one does not bother me at all and i wish i wish they had taken a hint from reminders for notes and and calendar and just gone with, look, you can still do notepaper style stuff. It doesn't have to have the little ripped off thing. I still know it's paper. And in fact, I would say this looks even more like paper. This looks great. Yeah. Uh, the left side of it is a little dark for me, like with a calendar view and everything like that. So yeah. even though I like the look of it, like usability wise, I feel like there's some sacrifices being made for that. Uh, but uh, but as with all the other applications, the key feature of this one is that it. It exists because before there wasn't a reminder equivalent on the Mac, and it looks it looks and it looks the same on iOS, and they work kind of similar, but they stare at the same data store. So it's kind of like if you live your life on your phone and you got these reminders, like why shouldn't I be able to see them on my Mac? Oh well, you can't. You have to look at your phone. Well, now it's all synced up the same way it was. But like if you had a contact in your phone, you could see it on your Mac, and uh, if you added a, a calendar event, you could see that on your Mac. So reminders just make sense for it to be here and. Fits perfectly that it would look like the iOS. No, we t- we, this is something I wanted to ask you. We talked a lot about animations in general when Lion first came out, window animations, opening animations, things like that. And in Reminders app, that was one that, that stood out to me as one I wanted to ask you because you mentioned the little calendars look and the, and the left-hand side that's somewhat dark. If you, uh, if you click, I almost said tap. If you click in uh, the little... I guess it's there's an up-facing arrow that turns to a right-facing arrow in a box. You know the one I'm talking about in the bottom left of the reminders window to show the calendar part. You mean? Yeah, that will that will bring out the sidebar which has the calendar part in it. Yep. Um, if it, it, there's there's this kind of animation where it it the window size isn't actually changing um, from top to bottom, but it almost seems like it is. And what's going on inside is because it's sort of sliding up and going above those little buttons. 
Like, what do you think of those types of animations that when you, uh, when you, you click something and instead of just snapping into a new view, that the, the window itself sort of morphs into something else, slide, things sliding around inside. Does that bother you or do you like that? Like the calculation of animations is pretty simple. It's, it's like I could probably write it out as an equation. It's like, you know, f- expected frequency of animation, duration of animation, yeah. and like what you're expected to do. Like and anything that transforms a window from one mode to the another, in general, you tend not to repeatedly transform reminders. Show the sidebar, hide it. Show the sidebar, hide it. Show it. You, like, you decide how you want to use it and usually just keep it that way. So I don't mind if those things are all whizzy and neat. Like there's a limit, obviously. You don't want it to have like sparks flying out of it and little men come out and build the sidebar for you in an animated thing, which would be really cool the first time you saw it but would not really cool the 10th time I saw it, right? So <laughs> right. I think they strike the right balance for those types of animation. The ones that were killing me in Lion were the ones that's just like, when a new window appears, it's animated. Like, that's going to happen all day long. Please do not use that animation. Or in Mountain Lion, the equivalent is smooth scrolling, which is on by default, and I couldn't figure out how to turn off on my own. Uh, since then, people have sent me uh, the information on how to turn it off, which I could have found myself if I had looked at the release notes for... Uh, the, the Cocoa API changes. But uh, anyway, I've updated the review of that information. But smooth scrolling is where when you hit the page down key on your keyboard, it slides the the view upwards. Instead of simply saying, you were previously looking at this range of the uh, document, after you hit page down, I will immediately switch the view like instantaneously to a different range of the document with no animation in between where you see like half of the one and half of the other or anything like that. Smooth scrolling is really fast. The, the animation is fast, but uh, people kept asking me, why would you want to disable that? Animation like that, it draws my eye. Like the motion draws my eye. Like it's about, you know, predatory animals with their eyes in the front of our heads. And motion draws our eye because we want to go kill it and eat it. I don't know. Evolutionarily speaking, for whatever reason, things that move get your attention. The same way when you like move something and a cat looks at it. Oh, you know, it's just part of our physiology. And I don't want to look at, I'm not interested in that move, motion. I know why that motion is there. I initiated it. I just want to see the result of that motion, which is a different range of the document. And it's distracting to me when I find my eyes drawn to that motion because it is a, not of any interest to me. So that's why I want to turn it off. And again, in terms of frequency and what you're doing at the time, I'm constantly using page down or the space bar or whatever to scroll. So that happens all the time. And so the frequency is very, very high. And I do not want my eye to be drawn towards that because maybe I'm like looking at something else or thinking about something else or I just want to read what's going to show up on the next screen. But I find my eyes following the previous contents of the screen as they race upwards and it's uncomfortable to me. Uh, and I, you know, it's hard to stop myself from doing it. So that's an animation that I don't like. Uh, but window transformations and other stuff like that, that happens rarely. I, I give them a pass. I think they're fine. Um, and as I pointed out in many past Mac Western reviews, some animations are actually very important. Like the one I always bring up is the genie animation, where it's showing you where your window went. Like, that's providing information. And that can get grating to some people. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. When I minimize a window, it goes to the dock. You don't need to show me this animation anymore. But I think that's important enough that there should be an animation. I liked it when there was an animation-free way to minimize windows called Window Shade. Uh, but even I've stopped running the Window Shade extension. I trained myself out of it just because I didn't want to run any more OS-level hacks. Uh, so animation is a complex topic. Uh, I forgot to mention that on, on calendar. There was an animation in the line version of calendar that drove people nuts. So when you change months, it would show the big page curl, the page turn, you know, peeling off the thing. And people switch months a lot. Let me look back two months, forward three months. They don't want to see that stupid animation every time. So in Mountain Lion calendar, they removed that animation from almost all places. It still shows up. I forget where it is. Where, where does it still show up? I think it still shows up when you do the two-finger swipe to change. 
maybe they think people who are two finger swiping want to see the cool animation because it's like tactile or whatever. But when you use the arrow keys, uh, the command arrow or whatever, then you, I think then you also, mean business. That's why. Yeah, they don't. Then they don't show that animation. So that's a case where I'm sure they very consciously they probably got tons of complaints. So like I'm sick of seeing that page curl. I turn months all the time. Stop. Turn it off. So they turned it off almost everywhere, but it's still there. Uh, as a bit of whimsy for people who use finger swiping. What's interesting, you're talking about in the month view, right? So that if, if, you, if yep. you swipe, it does do the page. But if you go to the week view, regardless of whether you hit the arrow or swipe, it, it d- does the sort of scrolling within the window jump. Yeah, and I think the scrolling within the window is less objectionable to people yeah. than the big page girl. I mean, it takes less time and it kind of makes more sense to them a little bit. Like, I mean, it's objectionable to me. I don't even like smooth scrolling, but... Uh, I think most people do like smooth scrolling, which is probably why they turned it on by default and why so many people said, why would you ever turn off smooth scrolling? Lots of people have it on, always had it on. It was always been an option. There just used to be a checkbox for it, and I would always turn off that checkbox. Uh, now it's on by default, and if you want it off, you got to do the little P-list tack, which you can find in my article. Uh, Notes is another app that didn't exist before, but did exist on iOS. Notes used to be integrated into the Mail app, which was always weird and awkward, um, and still actually is using the same back end for that. Jason Snell found this out. Uh, and I updated my article to not imply that it was not the case. That it's still using IMAP to, for the note storage, apparently, behind the scenes. Like, it's not, it didn't change its data store. Uh, but we don't care about the implementation detail. What we care about is I have a bunch of notes. I enter notes in the little yellow notepad app on my phone or whatever. Why can't I see them on my Mac? Well, now you can. Synchronize with the same data store, an application that looks almost like a regular window, but not quite because the, the, the title bar is like brown leather I don't even know what that's supposed to be. You got the little yellow legal paper. You got the little tear-off sheets. Again, just a random static graphic that has no reflection on how many pages you've torn off or anything like that. Uh, Noteworthy, marker felt, and Helvetica available. Yeah, you have more font choices. Yeah, I, I did I write about this review. You can put like images and stuff in these notes here too. But in my testing, I would put an image on it on my Mac, and then I would go look at it on my iOS device. And the image would just show up as this weird little inert icon. You couldn't see the image. I'm like, I bet in iOS 6 you'll be able to see the image in both places. But it, that's the thing about in iOS, how would you get an image into a note? Like you're sitting there typing a note in, on your iPad or iPhone. Blah, 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 and it's like, oh, I'd like to put a photo here. I guess you could bring up some kind of reverse sharing pane where you pull the photo out of your camera roll. Or maybe you go into the camera roll and say add to note or something. like. But on the Mac, hey, I just got the notes application. I, you know, I'm a competent Mac user. I know how to take a file from the file system and you just drag it into the note window. So there's so many things that we take for granted on the Mac that just don't exist on iOS. Uh, and it's nice to see them taking advantage of them, saying, Mac users can figure out how to get an image in there. We should support it. Uh, I hope iOS 6 catches up the other side of the equation and lets you, you know, see the results of those actions over there. But this looks, this application is just a de- even more so than Calendar, a dead ringer for the iPad version of the Notes application. I put a screenshot of the Notes application on the iPad, like, it's not pixel or pixel the same, but I, I can imagine that it was all created from the same original high-res rendering or 3D model or whatever it is. Right down to the little leather flap on the left-hand side that's actually blocking some content. Like, it's blocking a little bit of the last row and a little bit of the sidebar. That exists on the Mac, too. And that's, that's taking whimsy maybe a little too far. At least they only do it on the Mac when you go in full screen mode. Uh, but I know a lot of people who like 11-inch Airs who like full screen mode. And like, if you like full screen mode, you've got to deal with this leather flap. Isn't it whimsical? <laughs> like, yeah, sure, maybe, but like, could I just see that part of my document? Because once the list get down, gets down that low, ugh, yeah, not not great. Uh, so I want to I, I want to mention something. One little interruption with you. I have actually a question for you. Aren't you running a device with iOS six? 
I am not. I do not generally install the iOS betas because I don't have like spare devices that I, I'm willing to screw up with a beta of iOS. Okay, I, I, I'm probably not allowed to say what happens when you put an image into a note on iOS 6, am I? I don't know. You can, you can make that joke. I assume that they work. I mean, because the only reason they wouldn't work is because, well, it's iOS 5 and, and Notes app didn't exist when iOS 5 was made. On, mm. It didn't exist on the Mac when iOS 5 was made. And now it does exist on the Mac, so surely in iOS 6 it will work. That's okay. my prediction. Okay. Yeah. Go with that. Yeah. You can also tear off the notes to be individual notes, which scared a lot of people and think, did they remove stickies? <laughs> the venerable stickies application? Who made stickies? I wish I could remember this. Was it the same guy who made Talking Moose? I don't remember. Maybe he just had moose in his name. <laughs> but anyway, the Stickies application is still there, but you can also tear off individual notes so they don't have, and they become like little floating sticky notes. Not really floating, but like they're Jen's, not attached Jen's to Jen's Alfki. Yeah, is he talk, the talking moose guy? Uh, antler notes. Antler notes. I knew it was some sort of moose-related thing. It <laughs> <laughs> all comes back to the moose. <laughs> So I, I think Notes looks pretty good in terms of a yellow sticky note app, the leather thing aside and the stitching around the leather thing. But like an individual floating yellow sticky note, it looks like a cute little yellow piece of paper, right? I I think it's neat. They all have little share buttons next to them. Uh, I, I, I don't mind it too much. Even the font, which it's not Comic Sans, but it's also, you know, you can change it on the Mac. At least you have some choices. And uh, it doesn't offend me that much. Messages is a problem. <laughs> a big one. A bit. We, we could do a whole show on messages and not have enough time to talk about what's wrong with it. Or maybe you could because it's so much is wrong with messages that I f- just fled from it immediately. Like the beta, the beta <laughs> yeah. was released for the Mac, like agent for Lion. It was a beta yeah. of messages for Lion, and the headline feature of messages is, oh, now you can send iMessages from your Mac. Basically, Apple's replacement for SMS. Uh, you can send and receive them from your Mac. Finally. But that's not all. They didn't just take iChat and add the ability to do messages. They just totally changed the interface to look like, surprise, the iPad version of the messages application. Uh, and I don't like that, period, even if it worked perfectly. I don't, I don't like my desktop IM clients to look like that. I don't even use iChat. I use Adium. That's my preferred client. I have it configured to have every chat in a separate window. I don't use tabs. Like I'm very particular about the way my messages work. So I was never even using iChat at all. But messages, it goes even more in the direction of interface I don't, I don't like. But the real problem that everyone has who actually stuck with messages is that it just doesn't work. Like the beta just didn't work. You'd send messages, you wouldn't get them. They would come dupl- t- uh, multiple times. They would be delayed. You couldn't tell whether it was working or not. I'm online. Why don't I see you? You see me. Like, And so that's a beta, right? You expect it not to work. Um, I think the version that ships a Mountain Liar is better than that beta. It is not as completely, totally broken. But I had some of the same problems. And that's, I mentioned this in a review. What do you do in a case like that? You're like, well, it's better than the beta. And should I be making judgments based on like developer preview two, developer preview three? Like, and then even when I got the GM seed, like, is this the final GM? Maybe it'll be fixed in the final one. And the real problem is, is the application screwed up or is it just the server side part of the application? Like, I may be using a completely bug free version of the messages application, but every time it talks to the server, the server gives it crazy results. So if, a mess, if I see a message duplicated twice or one doesn't arrive, maybe, just, maybe the server sent bad data or maybe the server didn't tell it about a message. And you can't blame the application for that. But as far as the user is concerned, it just seems like messages doesn't quite work right. So I do think Messages in Mountain Line is much, much better than the beta that was available online, but I still saw weird behavior. Like what? So, I, the, where I'd send someone a message and like, did you send that? Yeah, I sent it. Oh, I didn't get it yet. Did you get it? I didn't get it. I quit messages. I relaunched it. And the, oh, now I see your message. Stuff like that makes me, you know, 
not want to use this application. It doesn't behave in a predictable way. Uh, and even when it works right, I, like I'm not quite, I don't like the interface of having the sidebar with all your messages and having it resort itself and stuff like that. Uh, what I talked about mostly in the review is that bugs aside and interface issues aside, the whole idea of integrating IM with the Apple's equivalent of, of SMS uh, is it crosses a boundary that, that previously existed that we've all taken advantage of, which is when you send someone text, you have the idea that they get it on their phone and like it's with them and it makes their little phone buzz and they see it. When you send someone an IM, it's like, well, if they have an IM application running or they have IM notifications, turn, push notifications turned on on their phone, maybe they'll see it. But really what I'm trying to do is send them something that they're going to see on their Mac screen. So well, what, the, what the promise, the prom, let's focus for what the promise of messages is. The promise of messages is the same thing that Netflix gives you for videos and the same thing that, uh, you know, I, if, if you're set up correctly and the same thing that Kindle would give you in reading across multiple devices. And that is you can pick up and finish conversations wherever you are. You could be sitting at your Mac and you can say, uh, you know, I, I'm going to leave now. I'll see you, see you when I get home. And then your wife can reply to that and say, don't forget the whatever on your way home. And then you'll get that. And you can't say, oh, I missed that message because uh, I'd walked away from my computer already because it's now on your phone or it's on whatever device you have with you. And you can pick up the conversation there. And when you get to your computer at home, it's there. And that's sort of the promise is you have, uh, you have that interconnectedness between all of your devices. And that, that's what you think it would do. But it doesn't do that consistently like you were saying, some devices, you get no message. Uh, other devices, you get a message when you don't want it to. I don't want my phone to keep buzzing uh, for an IM that I never used the phone for. It should just know that here I am on the Mac and I'm typing on the Mac. But there's also some other weird behaviors. Like even, even if, you, if you're not running messages, you will still get... You, and, and messages is confusing because messages does all the things that iChat does. And in other words, it lets you sign into AIM. It lets you sign into Gtalk. It lets you sign into whatever other service it, it provides. But it also is connected to that SMS service. And that's, that's kind of the line that they crossed between... And that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, like we've been using these individual services that you just listed, uh, whatever your IM thing of choice is, or like Jabber. And they have different characteristics. Like Jabber, for instance, Jabber chat rooms... And Skype chat rooms that room, for that matter, do have persistence where if you have yeah. a conversation at, at work and then you come home and you open up the same room in the Jabber client or the Skype conversation, you see what you previously talked about. But other things like AIM tend not to have that. Like they have it within the client. So if I have an AIM conversation at work, if I come back to work the next day, I can see the previous conversation. But if I go home, that previous conversation isn't there because it's client side. Uh, and then, of course, SMS, which we used to all talk to each other on our phones. And we've all been using these different things that I described in those contexts for what we expect them to be used for. If I have something that I want to be persistent, I'll use Skype or a Jabber room. If I just want to do one-off things where I'm sending someone a funny URL, I'll use AIM. If I want to send someone really important that I want to make sure they get it, I'll send it uh, as an SMS because they'll get it on their phone. And the dream of Apple and this application is that all those other protocols that I talked about, Jabber, Skype, uh, AIM, you know, if you still have your ICQ number, whatever the heck you're doing over there, those all go away because all you need is iMessages. iMessages works on your phone, it works on your desktop, it doesn't require a cell phone texting plan from the stupid carriers where they charge you money for your bits, it's just ridiculous, like, this is the grand unification. But, uh, first of all, we're not there yet, we still have this big mix of things, and second of all, even if we were there, 
those distinctions were useful. And it comes up when trying to test messages or anything where you're like, I want to send a funny URL to the guy in the next cube over. And I know, you know, I know his IM thing or whatever. So you fire up messages and you send him the funny URL. And then his iPad, his iPhone, and his Mac and his Mac is home all chirp at the same time because that message went to 17 different locations. And it's like, no, I just wanted to send it to the guy. Doesn't it know that that guy is like not on his, you know, I just wanted to send it to him on his Mac, but he's not using his iPad because that's in the upstairs bedroom. But his, his phone is buzzing too, but it's not important enough to be on his phone. Oh, did I accidentally send to his iMessage account? Maybe I should send only to his AIM account because you can pick which account you send it to for messages. But if, if the grand unification that Apple wants ever happens, you won't even be able to make that distinction anymore. And it'll just be like, it appears everywhere. So like, like I said in the review, there needs to be much better awareness about like presence. Where is this person actually? I know they have 17 devices and they're all signed into it and it's all signed up for the same Apple ID. And I know those accounts are all right. But like, where do you really want this message to go? Not just the person, but the device or some sort of smarts about, okay, he's not using his iPad and hasn't used it for an hour. Don't make it so his iPad in the room where his wife is sleeping goes beep, 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 and the notification thing appears there because that's just going to make him turn off notifications on his <laughs> iPad. But sometimes when he's using his iPad, he might want to see a notification. It's, it is such a huge mess in terms of uh, awareness of presence and targeting messages and stuff like that. And what used to be simple, not simple, but what used to be workable from nerds, which was divvying up all these different contexts by protocol and by client, now becomes unworkable with messages because it all blends together. Uh, so I, I don't know the way out of this. I linked to an article by Dan Moore and I think at Macworld where he argues that these should be separate applications. I'd, I would not go that far. I can see the argument for it because he's trying to get back some sanity that we had before. I like the idea of unification. I would much rather all of us only have iMessage accounts, but then have some kind of control or smarts about where we are and where we want to receive messages. And that just doesn't exist yet. Oh, and then, of course, there's bugs. You know what I mean? We talked about the bugs, but like above and beyond all of this, this has got however it's supposed to work, it has to actually work that way. Uh, and they're not quite there yet. I'm going to have to decide where to cut this off. I think so we can get through applications, then we'll cut it off. Um, Safari is the next one. Safari, I've been using what was formerly known as Safari 5.2, but recently became known as Safari 6. Apple had beta releases of that for Lion, and that's where I was using it. The version on Mountain Lion is a little bit different, but mostly it's like, you know, the improvements to the rendering engine, tweaks to the user interface, stuff like that. It's been very similar. So I feel comfortable with this application. Uh, the big change to the UI is that they got rid of the separate search field in the top. Now you just have a single field that you can type into. Uh, that's another place where I got a correction on the thing where I was like, Apple is the last major browser vendor to go to this thing where you can type searches into the address field and they work. That's kind of true, but kind of not really, because there still is a separate search field in Firefox, but you can also type Google queries into the search field. And in, even in the Safari 5 address bar, you could type in something that was not a host name and then arrow down to please do, run the search in Google and you would be fine. But I still think there is a distinction to be made here is that Apple has now made it so you can type a bunch of words that are not a host name and hit return and it will do a Google search. And that's how Chrome works and that's how Firefox works. Uh, and now that's how Safari works. And the Opera people, I'm sorry, I don't consider, consider your browser a major browser. And they are very upset about that, as they always are. But uh, I left that part. Um, <laughs> I, I like that change. I, I don't really like having a separate search field. I, like many people, Marco just tweeted about this today and other people said it. I'm going to have to rewire my muscle memory not to go tab tab to get to the search field or whatever it is that my fingers type to get me into the search field. Because now if I hit that number of tabs, I end up focusing, putting the keyboard focus on, on the body of the window and not the search field. But I'll get used to it. 
uh, it was torture for me because I was running Safari 5.1 and then Safari 5.2 or 6 on different machines at the same time. So when I sit down at one place, my muscle memory would be all screwed up and then I'd go back to the other one, it would be screwed up. But now I'll unify on Safari 6 and uh, that will make me happy. Uh, and I generally like it. Uh, they, I don't like what they did, again, reflecting what many other browser vendors did, of uh, making the path portion of the URL and the address bar like grayed out. Uh, I understand why they did it and I actually clarified in the review to change my complaint to be more precise because there are advantages of it. First of all, regular users don't even look at that bar. It might as well even not even exist. They have no idea that URLs exist. Uh, but they've slowly been changing that bar in all browsers to emphasize to the user, you are connected to someone we recognize to be Bank of America with like a little lock icon yeah. and a little green thing that says they're SSL. Like they don't know what these things mean technically, but they can say, huh, when I connect to my bank, I usually see a little green thing and it says Bank of America. But now it's not green, so maybe I'm being fished. Well, highlighting the host name portion of the URL and dimming everything else makes it harder to do a phishing attack where they put something that looks like a host name uh, in the path portion or do some other trickery. You can still get around it by making a really long host name that starts starts with a bunch of characters that look like Bank of America but ends in something else, something else.cx or whatever. Uh, but I understand their motivation there. But if you're a web developer like I am, it's kind of annoying because you spend a lot of time looking at the path portion of the URL and now it's all grayed out. So that's no good. They also hid the HTTP, which I find slightly objectionable. I don't think people need to see that. I don't need to see it as a web developer. But... It's kind of weird to me that when you do HTTPS, they have to show the badge. When you do HTTP, there's no badge. And I don't know. I mean, I guess it works out for regular users. But again, as a web developer, it's not up my alley. And they had a bug in early Safari builds, which I was so glad that they fixed because I didn't have time to report it. And I'm like, man, if this isn't a release build, I'm going to be pissed. Which was if you went into the address bar and selected the address like, and, like with, the, with the IBM cursor, but didn't do select all, like you just wanted. Yeah, you know, it wouldn't copy the... Uh it wouldn't be yeah, the same HTTP. thing. Right? That was inf just incredibly frustrating because yeah. you're like, wait, and then if you hit like Command L, Command uh, Command C, then it would get it. Yeah. So I mean, this is something maybe that only people who do web development would have noticed, but I'm glad they fixed it. Yeah. And so that, that is better now. Amen. Yeah. Oh, oh, that is a little bit creepy. Like that's the thing with the HTTP. Like I select some text visually by highlighting it in blue, and I hit copy. Wouldn't you expect what's in the clipboard to be what you visually selected in blue? But it's not. They put the HTTP on there. Like, I like the fact that they do that, but it is a weird inconsistency of, like, that's not the text I had highlighted. Right. When I, you know, the address bar is a strange and magical place. It always has been and it continues to be. <laughs> I guess I guess that will we'll just have to live with that. Yeah. Uh, they added, I just noticed I put a screenshot of my reload button in here, too. No one has commented on that. Hey, how'd you get that reload button? Uh, it's a Safari extension. Google for it. You'll find it. Uh, they have the cloud tabs which I think is a very interesting solution to synchronizing tabs across browsers. And I like it this way. I know in a couple of past episodes of Gruber's podcast, he's mentioned how much he likes Chrome for iOS because it synchronizes his tabs across computers. That, that would not work for me at all because I, I don't even know how many tabs I have open in Chrome on my various computers, but they are all different, and I would never in a million years want those 8,000 tabs to open on the iOS client. I, don't, I basically don't want my tabs synchronized across my desktop machines or across my iOS machines. But sometimes you're like, didn't I have that tab open at work? I do like to be able to access them. I just don't want them to be automatically synchronized. And really, automatic synchronization of tabs, I think, would be upsetting to me, both visually and, like, uh, state-wise. Because, like, you do, you know, you launch the browser, and all of a sudden, all these tabs start appearing. Or, like, maybe, you know, you, had, you put a bunch of tabs on, your, on a laptop, and you closed it before it got to sync them. And then your wife opens the laptop while you're using the browser on your desktop. And it's logged into your account. And all of a sudden, it synchronizes those tabs. So while you're using 
your computer, all of a sudden a tab appears that you didn't like, where are these tabs come from? Oh, my wife wants to open the computer upstairs and it was on my account and now it's syncing them. I don't like that. Uh, someone in the chat room is saying Chrome for iOS works like Safari does. So apparently it's not automatically synchronized, but uh, I haven't used Chrome on iOS more than a few seconds. So uh, I'm glad that it doesn't auto sync, but I definitely do not want auto sync. I want basically what Apple has done and what apparently Chrome has done, which is give me a little button or some other way to see the tabs that are on other computers, the cloud tabs, they call them, but don't automatically shove them into my windows. Uh, I'll, I'll grab them when I want them. And it, it, we'll see uh, to get this type of feature. I really need to get all my Macs updated to uh, mountain lion because that's when I'll be able to see how useful it is. How, how much will I actually use it in practice or will I just remove that little cloud icon from the, the toolbar and just ignore it forever? Uh, I'm much more interested in the state of my local browser being restored to its previous state, but I think I will use the cloud stuff. So I give that mostly a thumbs up. They change how the tabs work. So now if you have two tabs open, one gets half the width and one of the other gets half the width. Stretchy tabs. I'm, I don't think that's that big of a no, deal. It doesn't bother me. It gives you a bigger target. Yeah, it, it changes the where you're mousing. You used to be able to mouse within like a, like a four-inch area to go from one tab to the other. Like now if you're closing tabs with the mouse really fast, it might make a difference, but there's a keyboard command for that. Yeah, although Chrome does that a good job on that. You know, Chrome how like make, keeps the tabs the same width until you've stopped for a little while, so you can hammer on the little close widget without repositioning. Uh, Safari should rip off a lot of what Chrome does with its tabs. Uh, they do a good job with it. And this just makes me have to move my mouse to the middle of the window to, to click between two tabs and like the dividing line moves basically uh, so I don't mind that I'm sure I'll get used to it some people think it's ugly I don't think it's that ugly I think the people who think it's ugly are the people who do always show tab bar but I'm not an always show tab bar person uh, reading list Marco's favorite feature uh, continues to be enhanced now with offline support Marco has done many blog posts about it we've <laughs> talked about it on yeah. past shows you can read what he has to say about it you know what, what is there to say I don't use reading list I use instapaper uh but when Marco uh, sells out for $100 million, mm-hmm. maybe I'll switch to reading list. Uh, especially since now it's synchronizing and all, you know, across all of it. I do use Safari as my main browser. I use Safari on iOS. Uh, I prefer Instapaper because I like the web interface for it. And there's no web interface for reading list. And that's how I do a lot of my stuff. I also like the dedicated Instapaper client on iOS more than I would trying to pull things up in reading list, even with offline support. Uh, but for people who don't know what Instapaper is, reading list continues to get better. Uh, they did the uh, next to the add tab button is this thing that gives you like a sort of zoomed out version of your tabs. It has slightly shrink, shrunken thumbnails that you can sort of flip through with touch controls. I can imagine this being useful in full screen mode in particular on like a small device like an 11 inch MacBook Air. I'm not sure how much I'll use it on the desktop just because I'm not using a touchpad and the swiping is really where this thing pays off. Uh, what I would like is something more like tab expose where it shows all my tabs as little thumbnails arranged instead of just a horizontal linear list of things but uh, it's neat i think it's worth having the button next to the little plus for tabs i don't know what the button is supposed to be it looks like i don't know a, a series of horizontal rectangles showing you a portion of them or something the show all tabs button uh that's another one of those features where i thought it was neat it worked well i can see it being useful every once in a while i've used it to try to search for tabs it's easier than it's a little bit easier than clicking from tab to tab to see all of them Having especially again on a laptop where you can just do the little uh, I think there's a gesture for it and then just do swipe 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 oh there's the one I want tap and you zoom in on it so I mostly give that a thumbs up uh, and this is this is a nice like this feature that they added a lot of people you know, Firefox has played with this I think Chrome has some sort of equivalent it's the type of feature that can be really heavyweight and come to dominate the UI uh, 
And I think Apple implemented it in a way where it's like you just get one little extra button. If you don't know about it, it's probably not going to bother you. It doesn't get in your way. Uh, but once you know about it, if you find it useful, it's actually kind of neat. It doesn't, it doesn't like dominate the UI. It doesn't turn the browser into like now everything is a visual thumbnail. And no, they still have regular tabs and it still kind of works the same way. Uh, some of the chat room says it looks kind of like CoverFlow, the icon. Yeah, I guess kind of similar, similar type of UI. Uh, let's see. Mail. I don't use the Apple Mail application. People who read my reviews may know that. But it's like, you didn't notice this important feature in Mail. And they changed this. And this is going to change my life. That's maybe true. I'm not a big Mail user. Uh, but they, aside from bug fixes and compatibility enhancements for things like Exchange and stuff like that, uh, that really maybe make a difference in someone's life but that I definitely am not going to notice. The, the headlining feature they had was VIPs, which I thought was interesting because it looks so much like the uh, a similar feature in Gmail. At Gmail, you can star a message, and that's been part of the Gmail interface from the start. They have a dedicated collection of all your starred messages. I use stars a lot in Gmail. That's my preferred email client these days. And now Apple Mail has little stars, but they don't work like stars in Gmail. You're not starring a message. What you're starring is the person. And once you put the little star next to the person's name, they become a VIP. And this dedicated collection for all your emails from VIPs. But Isn't from that, that point similar on, to the priority inbox in Gmail? The priority inbox is also different, where it's like we've decided based on some crazy heuristics that uh, this message is important. And it says this is important because it was sent directly to you and you replied to it. Therefore, uh. it marked as important. But <laughs> like there's rules that govern importance. But this is like very, you know, you know, my wife is a VIP. Anytime my wife sends me email, it, it, it's going to be filed under the VIP thing. I don't have to star her individual messages. They don't have to meet some sort of criteria for importance. It's just she is a VIP. Uh, so I think that's a easy to understand feature that people will use, even if you don't get like my volume of email. If you just get a little bit of email, be like, okay, when I get an email from my son, he's a VIP. And then you can look at the VIP folder. If you got a whole bunch of email, you haven't been, you haven't checked your email for the whole weekend because you're not a nerd. Uh, and on Monday you go looking like, oh, look at all these messages. I must have at least 20 in here, right? Uh, how, what Are there any of these important? Let me just click on my VIP folder. I think it's a good feature uh, implemented in a way that will be understandable. Uh, I, I like Gmail's method of starring things but if gmail had a thing where i could also file people's vips i would use it the most confusing thing about the interface for vips is that when someone is a vip their message shows up with a little outline of a star and it looks to me exactly like the widget in gmail that you have to click to fill with a yellow star like that looks like oh it's not starred yet but when i click that star it will become yellow and now it's starred but in reality in apple mail the little empty outline of the star is the star clicking that does nothing it doesn't add more star to it that is the star <laughs> and the confusion of those two interfaces like i don't use both interfaces so maybe it's not confusing for regular people but uh, i even i put a screenshot of gmail in there to show like wow these these look very similar where they mean totally different things in gmail that almost exact same graphic means and not starred and in mail it means starred uh, so I, I don't know how much overlap there is with the Gmail and, and Apple Mail users, but they'll have to deal with that. Uh, and the last section of this before we get to iCloud, which we're not going to have time for today, unfortunately, is about the naming thing and the sharing stuff. I already talked a little bit about the, the sharing stuff, but the, the sharing, we, we've talked about Windows 8 contracts briefly, and we've mentioned Android's intents and the, the whole idea that there's information on the computer that many applications can do something useful with. Maybe they know how to transfer it to somebody. Maybe they know how to read it or process it or do something else with it or, or view it or something like that. And some sort of generic system for saying, hey, I'm an application that knows how to show animated GIFs or movies. And so if some other application gets an animated GIF or a movie and doesn't know how to play that or display it or do something with it, 
I, I just want you to know that I'm available for that. And hey, I'm an email application. And if someone other application wants to send some mail, but they don't want to implement an email sending, well, I know how to send mail. So if you have data in one of these five formats that I know how to mail, uh, you know, or make a rich text message out of or whatever, or if you just want to send something as attachment, I'm available. So, you know, send mail through me. Uh, that type of system and also the type of system where the user can say, okay, I have seven applications that can send mail, but my favorite one is this one. That's my default email client. So if I'm in another application and I want to send mail, I want to, the systems be able to say, okay, well, I have these seven applications available that can send mail. Your favorite one is this one. So if you just click this button and say send it as an email, I'll open your favorite application and I'll send it as an email message. Uh, but you can pick from all the other ones, right? This is very similar to, uh, to OS X's services feature, which is something I hold over from Next Step, where that's how basically how services work. They express their intent for the type of data they can handle and the, the little snippets of, of code that can do interesting things with the help of some other application. But it's a very obscure feature, not easy to use, kind of buried in the Apple menu. Again, a holdover from the next days. Uh, and most non-nerds don't know services even exist and don't use them, let alone are binding them to keyboard shortcuts or doing other things that we nerds do. Uh, so the promise of uh, better sharing with the share buttons and everything, I like that. I think that would be good. But the way they implemented it is kind of like, well, you can share, kind of, but and, and we have share sheets for these services, but you can't like... Uh, the user doesn't get to pick what they want to be their mail application. We're always going to send it through Apple Mail. I, ho- I, I hope that's true. I tried to research it. Is it possible somewhere if you like change some plist value or change your default mail application to make Outlook launch? I think it always launches Apple Mail. I couldn't get it to launch any other application. So this is another case where my review could be wrong. But from all my testing, it doesn't seem to be a general purpose system where you get to, there's a whole bunch of applications that can send mail and you get to pick one. And in fact, they don't want you to launch another application most of the time. They would just want to show one of those little sheets, one of those sharing sheets. And if you have a service that you're like, hey, uh, I'm making a Twitter competitor and I would like it if the share button of all and all these applications could not just send to Twitter, but send to, you know, uh, you know, whatever my app.net Twitter replacement service. I would like that to appear in all the menus system wide. Well, you can't do that right now. What you can do is if you write an application, your own application in your own share menus, you could put like the app.net sharing thing, but it won't appear suddenly in all the system wide menus. So this could just be like it's not opened up to the public yet. Or it could be, it's never going to be open up to the public. And as I said in the review, if you want to get on that menu, all you got to do is start your own company worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and get hundreds of millions of users to use it. And then maybe Apple will consider putting you in the menu. But that's a pretty high barrier. So Facebook's going to be in the menus. Skype will probably be in the menus. Flickr is already in the menus. Uh, but not your random service. Uh, and that's kind of a shame. Like they don't have a, a generic system for this type of sharing on iOS or on the Mac. So I, I was disappointed in the... They're, they're willing to share data, but they're not willing to share the, the system by which things are shared. Not quite yet, anyway. This could just be a version one type of thing. We'll see. Uh, and the second thing is the naming thing, where, like, it's such a clear message. They started it in line, and they're continuing to mount in line to say, we're going to change this stuff to look like, act like, be called, and just, in general, reflect... All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. We've got word from uh, Tim Arnold here. Tim Arnold is the one who built the uh, 5x5 app, iOS app, by the way. And he's, right. he says, he claim, his claim is that the email share button responds to the default email reader in mail prefs. On iOS or on the Mac? On the Mac. Oh, well, that's good. And I have never installed another email reader, uh, so I, I, I don't know how well this would actually work. Does it work for Twitter clients? <sighs> I don't think so. I don't think they're I, there yet. I, Enough as a pref for like the default. Yeah, Twitter. that's what I'm wondering. But it, I'm looking right now. 
Because you don't... What Twitter, what Twitter client are you using on the Mac? Uh, Twitter, I think I'm using on the Mac. I don't even see where you would set... Where would you set that? I don't like... Maybe, the, maybe it's in there, but you'd have to do some sort of hack on the, the property list. Like, there are some things that are genericized. Like, for example, privacy, permissions, and notifications. There's a preference pane that says, here are all the things that might want to send notifications. Control how they're done. And that's like where you design your application to, to send the notification center. It appears in there. You get individual control. It's like a generic system. Whereas this thing with the sharing thing... There's no like equivalent of like, so when you share by this, what would you like? Would you like an application to launch? Would you like an inline sheet? Oh, I just installed a new Twitter client application and it knows how to display its own inline tweet sheet. Or maybe it doesn't get a chance to, but it just gets to, to be the recipient of that message. Or, you know, it's, it's not really a general purpose system yet. Uh, and I think on iOS, it's also not general purpose. It's part of Marco's big thing about he would love to be in the menus on like the Safari browser of like, you know, hold down your finger on a link and say, send to Instapaper or something, but he's not, he can't get in there. He's got to do the bookmarklet things so, right. because it's not an open system. Uh, it's a similar situation on the Mac. And I don't know if that's just because it's young and they haven't made it generic yet. And they're just like, well, really you just, we just want to get like Facebook, Twitter with the official Twitter client mail. I guess mail is grandfathered in because you could pick your default mail application and stuff like that. But it's just, it's really, and, and the other thing, I asked Apple about this. Why do you go to a separate application at all for mail? Why don't you get a little sheet like you do for tweets and for uh, Flickr or whatever other things you have? Why, why, is, why is that the, the exception? I didn't get a good answer for it, but, but my guess is be, they would have liked to do inline for mail. Uh, they just didn't get it done in time. So we'll see if in, like, in a point update, suddenly mail becomes an inline thing. But that's another type of thing where you're like... Power users or tweak, tweaky users would like. I would like to pick which things are inline in a sheet and which things send you to a different application. Uh, and as I described in the review, there's different reasons where you might want to go to a different application or might not on iOS versus the Mac, having to do with what are the odds that by leaving this application it will be alive when you come back to it or will it have to be restored. And on iOS, there's a very good chance that if you go off to another application that takes a lot of RAM, when you come back to that old one, it will have to relaunch and restore itself to that point. And then you're at the mercy of how well that developer implemented the restore feature. Uh, yeah so the the naming thing uh, as i as i said i think i've said this on i think i said this first on this show and i think it was on an episode where i said what you're hearing now is a rambly version of what will eventually be condensed into my mountain line review and that ended up being true and the the money line in this is that for the vast majority of people who use apple products when they talk about consistency i think this was on the uh, the episode where we talked about uh what, what was the guy's name? That guy's father, who was being shown using a Mac for the first time. Oh yeah, Chris yeah, Perillo. Uh, Chris Perillo. Yeah, Chris Perillo's dad, and he was bragging about. Uh, he he was saying, "Oh, I, this Mac, I like how Apple has made everything nice and consistent because I know this, I recognize this." And when he kept saying everything was nice and consistent, he didn't mean it was everything on the Mac looks the same, and they all use like consistent interface elements, and all the scroll bars look the same, like what we used to mean back in the '80s and '90s about interface consistency. What he meant was that consistency means it looks like iOS. Because iOS is what he's familiar with. And I, there are many, many more iOS users than Mac users. Many, many, many more. So to, to the general public, the, to the extent that you can make the Mac look like iOS, they like that. And so that's why our Macs are all turning into not iOS devices in terms of behavior and, and features and stuff, but like visually, oh, this looks like the same Contacts app I had on iOS. In fact, it's called Contacts. And you know, like they, they think of it as the same app. Contacts, Contacts. They have no idea there's a Mac app and an iOS app. They're like, oh, do you have Contacts on your phone? Yeah, I have Contacts on my phone. I also have Contacts on my, on my Mac. They mean it's the same application. It's not actually the same application, but that's the illusion Apple is creating. Uh, so it's not just looks like iOS. It looks and works a little bit, at least a little bit like iOS. And so that, 
that whole uh, re- renaming of everything, of changing changing the applications, not calling it iCal, calling it Calendar, and uh, you know the names didn't they didn't take the Mac names and port them over to iOS, even though iCal has been around way longer than iOS even existed, right? That name has. I don't know if it has good things associated with it, but it has a long association for us Mac users. But we are in the vast majority. So it, it, our platform, the older platform with the older names, our names got chucked out and we got the iOS names. So it's contacts, calendar, notes, reminders, uh, and, and messages instead of iChat. All those names gone because there are many more iOS people than Mac people. All right, I think we're going to have to... Uh, Cut it off and wrap it up. All right. We made it by 50%. I look at my scroll bar here on the review. 50% and we're under the iCloud part. There'll be much What's more. What's going to happen next week, John? Yeah. So next week I will be on vacation. Uh, I will have 3G internet access, but not sufficient or of any reliability to. Uh, I may actually have regular internet access depending on what Wi Fi I can steal. Uh, but I will not have sufficient internet access to do uh, a podcast. You will so, be, let's just say, be honest, you will be at sea. I will be near the sea. Yeah. You're close. Yes. Uh, so I'll be taking a, you'll a be on. You'll be on a boat, as they say in the video. Oh, God, no, I won't be on a boat. Oh, <laughs> brief, briefly, I'll be on a boat. Uh, but in my place, there will, I don't know, do you want to say what's going to be in my place? Well, we, no, we'll, we'll, we're, uh, I mean, we need to finalize the, the details of it, but I have some commitments. If you remember the last time that you were unavoidably detained and couldn't do a show, we did an episode of Kinda Critical which uh, is not quite hypercritical, but it, it is uh, as close as we can get without you. Uh, so th- this will be a special episode in, in your absence. It will not be an episode of hypercritical, though you have, you have this time, you have, I think you have uh, said that you would allow it to go in the regular stream so that people who would like to honor and pay tribute to you while you're gone will find it easy to do so. Yes, it will be in the same RSS feed, but my, uh, what I emphasize is that it will not be an episode of Hypercritical. It will be something different. Maybe something we like better. You don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. But anyway, that's what you will get next week. Uh, and when I return the week after that, we will continue talking about Outline, which by then will be such an old topic and you'll be so sick of it. And yet we still will talk about it because I, <laughs> I want to get through all these things. And eventually I will talk about all the production process and the ebook woes and all the stuff involved in that. I think that can wait till even later because it's not topical at all and now i'll wait for all the dust to settle to see what the the final conclusion is uh, so the final thing i want to talk about here very briefly is my survey from several episodes ago that we totally forgot to talk about in the last episode right your your journey survey right yes my, i put a survey question up that said would you like me to hear me do an episode of hypercritical where i describe my experience playing journey and then talk about the game as a as, as a matter of course talking about that experience and compare it to other experiences gaming or otherwise uh, I made the mistake of reloading that page, and now it's taking a million years to come back. Uh, and what I said was that I, I wanted to know, pro or con, don't, don't just tell me that I shouldn't do it if you don't like it, and don't just tell me that I should do it if you do like it. I wanted everybody that had an opinion in either direction to answer the survey because I didn't want it to be uh, unbalanced. Like if I, if I just say, tell me if I shouldn't do it, and I get you know, 500 responses to say no, I don't, that doesn't give me any information. So I wanted everyone to respond. Uh, so far, about 2,000 people have responded. It's pretty good, I guess. I mean, most people just don't want to answer surveys. I think what it means is that most listeners probably just don't even care. Uh, and, you know, do an episode, don't do an episode. But 2,000 people responded. You want to take a guess at the ratios for yes, do it the episode, and no, don't do it? Yeah, like the percentages for yeah, people per- saying percentages. yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say is in, in the, you have not shared this with me, so this really is just a guess. But I'm going to guess it was probably in the 
maybe mid to upper 60s, maybe even 70s, cresting 70 to say, yes, you should do it? Well, I, what I entertained briefly was telling you the percentages, telling you the split, but not telling you which answer had which percentage and then asking for more responses. Because then they would be like, if I, if I said it was like, it's like a 60-40 split, but I didn't tell you which was the 60 and which was the 40. Uh-huh. And I said, and now please give more responses. If you're paranoid that like, oh, that, that's like, what <laughs> that's if the crowd 60, manipulation. What, what if the 60 is no, then I really want to vote yes. But then the no people are like, what if the 60 is yes? I really want to hammer. Well, I'll no, tell but- you what would happen. And, and this is the weirdest thing. And I, there's probably there's probably long studies and books been, that have been written on this. But whenever I have done any kind of survey over the last three or four years, the percentage stays the same regardless of the number of, uh, of, of respondents. So if we have 100 and it's 60-40, when we get 500, it's still about 60-40. When we get 1,000 or 3,000 or 5,000 or whatever, it's almost all it's, – it's weird. Once it gets to that percentage, after the first like 100 people respond – the percentages almost never change. And I'm sure that there's a, a term for that that you know. Yes, I'm sure. Well, I mean, it makes sense as long as your selection process isn't changing. Like suddenly now you're advertising the survey to an entirely new group of users who didn't know about the previous one. But we're always just talking about it on the podcast. So anyway, I decided not to do that. I'll tell you what the, the percentages are. The, the current percentages are 71% yes, 29% no. And as I said in the so previous I was, I was, I was I was pretty much right. You were close. You were actually less, more pessimistic than I was because you were willing to say it was going to be like 60 or something. Yeah. Uh, I did say it might crash 70. Yep. Uh, and as I said in the past show, this isn't like I, I'll just take the survey result and do whatever it says. Uh, either direction, yes or no, I, was, I would just wanted to have it as an additional data point. Now, what I will say is about the results of the survey, I was shocked at how many people didn't want me to do it. I thought, I think 29%, and also I had a comment box at the bottom where you could put comments, so I was, I'm looking at the comments as well. There are people who are saying, by merely mentioning the fact that you're going to have a survey and could potentially do the show, I'm unsubscribing to the feed to avoid this episode ever accidentally being downloaded by one of my devices. Not just one person said that. Many people said that. Some people really, really don't like games. It makes me wonder why they listen to this podcast. Like, I'm preemptively unsubscribing from your podcast <laughs> for fear that this episode will even appear anywhere on my computer, right? So that's the hardcore. But lots of people are like, I hate games. I don't like them. I'm surprised at 30% of people who, 30% of listeners who apparently listen to this podcast just not only aren't interested in games, but like actively dislike them. Well, I, 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 you're, you're assuming, though, did you give them a, a place or a reason to, to state a reason why they might not want it? Because perhaps they want to play the game and don't want you to ruin oh, it. Pe- people said that as well. Okay. Like I, that's why I waited this long to even mention this at all. Like I, that would, that's a whole separate issue. Because if I actually did this episode, what I would say is that like, do not like. I would start the episode by taking five minutes and berating people, saying, "Seriously, don't listen to this episode. It's going to ruin everything." I really want you to play this game. I really want you to enjoy it. You will enjoy the episode more after you play it. Put the episode down. Do not listen. Right? Like I think people <laughs> put I would, the episode I would not, back. I would not spoil it. <laughs> central Central Limit Theorem. KJ Healy in the chat room says it has to do with a study in probability theory, according to Wikipedia. He sends this link. The central limit theorem states that given certain conditions, the mean of a sufficiently large number of independent random value, values, each with finite mean and variance, will be approximate, normally distributed. The central 
Uh, limit theorem has a number of variants, but in this common form, John, the random variables must be identically distributed. Just want to mention that. Yeah, and, and it, it it bears out in this case because it was seventy thirty from like from the go right. when we had like hundred people. I'm not surprised. 70, you saw 70, 30, 70, 30 to that. It's fluctuated like a, like a percent. Right. As as the number of respondents has gone from hundred so to two thousand. Doesn't that tell you that you don't really need? More responses. No, I, that's, why, a, that's why I said I'm not doing that. Like yeah. I'm not. I don't. Need, I don't need any more responses. Uh, but what this does tell me is that I'm probably not going to do this as an episode of Hypercritical. What I am doing it is, is trying to get the incomparable guys to play the game so we can talk about it on that show, which won't be the same thing because believe it or not, they just don't let me talk for two hours straight by myself on Incomparable. Like the other guests want to talk and stuff. It's weird. Well, you can. Th- there's going to be a version of that where y- you can just hear your track and nobody else's track. Yeah. So, so even I, though I, there'll be silence, it'll still just be you. Yeah. I still, I still, even after we do that episode, which if we get it done, I think I will enjoy it. I will probably still have in me this burning desire to describe my particular experience. But apparently, this podcast is not the venue to do that. And I will say that the people who said yes, the seventy percent of people who did say yes, they left comments too, and they were like, "Totally do this! Oh my god, you have to do this! It's going to be awesome!" Like the people who were enthusiastic for it were very enthusiastic for it. Both people who played the game and who didn't play it, a lot of people said. I'm not going to be able to listen until I play, but please do the episode. I'll just save it until later. Uh, but 30% saying no so strongly. I mean, I, I partly think that they have a misunderstanding of what the episode would be like because it really wouldn't be that different from the episodes that we've had in the past. Like, it's just me talking. And if you can listen to me talking for this number of hours already, it wouldn't be that bad. But uh, but 30% is dissuading me. I, I've not made a final decision, but I'm leaning heavily towards not doing it at this point. But leaning heavily towards doing something similar in a different context that I would be sure to tell you about on this podcast. So... That's where I come down the journey thing. All right. And I think, God, I don't even know how long we've gone today, but I think it's time to stop. All right. And by the way, people are, are in, 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 they're just adamant that I mentioned that it's actually the law of large numbers. So that, uh, but you don't argue with KJ Healy. He isn't, wasn't he the one who said the other thing? He was, but uh, I'm, no, he's always right. Yeah, but this, this guy, this guy's username in the chat room is stats. I mean, yeah. can you argue with someone named stats I'm still about going stats? I'm still going with well, KJ. Well, how about this? As an exercise to the listener, they're both going to be in the show notes. You decide. That's right. Even though KJ Healy may or may not have missed one of the references in my article when he posted something about the headings earlier in the the chat. My engineer, Jim, has said that you could just do it as a special, that it could be a standalone special in the 5x5.tv slash specials feed. So I would encourage you to do that. That's another option. Like, I still want to do the uncomparable one. But yes, that's another option is just do it as a special. Yeah, do it. Or yeah, both. We'll see. It's still like it's not. It's not going to expire. It's not going anywhere. Uh, the more people have played the game, by the time I do it, the better. So I'm. It's backburnered for now. But I thank everyone who responded to the survey, uh, and we'll just see what happens. All right. Well, if you would like to see the show notes that we discussed, even though there aren't maybe as many as usual, there are a few important ones. You can do that by going to five by five TV slash hypercritical, and this is episode number seventy eight. So slash seventy eight, and uh, that is where you can go if you want to follow John. On Twitter, you can do so uh, by uh, going to twitter.com slash Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z in the spelling of Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, and we appreciate you guys listening. We will uh, be back again next week with Kinda Critical while John is away and then back to normal in a couple weeks from now. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks, John. Have a great one. You too. Thank you.